Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 2nd, 2015. Hope you made it through April Fool's Day without being fooled. Uh, again, I didn't fool you. I never run an April Fool's. Not yet, anyway. Uh, <laughs> I do keep threatening to do one one year, but I've never done it. Anyway, we are now into April 2nd. We are cruising into spring, and I have a great show for you today. John Dowie, who is a longtime friend, I first met in uh, 2013. He kind of rekindled my interest in ducks with how excited he was about his. Uh, he's on to talk to us about just that today. Ducks is a, is a backyard profitable business. Uh, he's only got about six-tenths of an acre. He's running about 100 ducks, and he does ducks plus microgreens plus permaculture consulting and a lot of other things. But ducks are the mainstay of his business, much as they are here for us at Nine Mile Farm. I'll have John on in just a moment to talk about that. Before I do, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources. Ready-Made Resources is a company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go on their website, point, click, and buy, get great pricing and incredible customer service from ReadyMadeResources.com. They're a long-term sponsor of the show, been with us almost since the beginning. Please remember that the next time you need something for your preps and check with one of our sponsors, especially with Ready-Made Resources. The guys that you know that come to the dance with you as a podcaster in the beginning usually don't stick around for a year. Um, ReadyMade, like many of our sponsors, has been here now well over five years. I think six years is, is more accurate for Ready. Uh, so again, check them out today, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, another long-term sponsor. Been with us, not since the beginning, but a long time, Sawtooth Tactical. You want to live that tactical cool lifestyle, get over to Sawtooth, sawtac.com. And they have all the things that you need to be tactical cool right there, from Maxpedition bags to Magpul magazines and everything in between, including the awesome Manly Titanium Spork. They've got it all. If it's tactical, cool, you'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical, and it's a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. That's where the name Sawtac comes from. Again, check them out today at sawtac.com. Next up today, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support the work we do. You get done with the show, you think it's worth $0.20 cents an episode, consider joining $50 bucks a year or $5 a month, your choice. You can pay online with PayPal. You can also use Bitcoin. You can uh, send a check, money order, or silver, or you can get in touch with me about barter as well. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, you can learn more. Go to the bottom to see all the different payment methods that are available. If you want to barter with me with something not listed there, well, get in touch with me before you send it to make sure that uh, the barter is actually a deal. Um, I do have people sometimes you know, very upset with PayPal for whatever reason and don't want to use PayPal. Again, I want to point out Bitcoin, check, cash, money order, silver, it's all available. Right there on the members page, just scroll to the bottom and you'll see how to do that. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a service discount. Just email me before, not after you join with service discount TSPC in the subject line. Now, before I bring John on, let us take a look at the year that was the episode, the year of 1548. I have the Matchlock comes to Japan, this of course being the Matchlock Musket. And the sky is the limit, and the emperor is far away. I'm going to read the sky is the limit, and emperor is far away for you. But you can read The Match Law Comes to Japan on the 1548 page on the TSP Wiki, the Survival, Sustainability, and History Wiki. 
made by the TSP community. Anyway, the sky's the limit and the emperor's far away. The Chinese are having problems with Portuguese pirates along their coast and perceive them as a military threat rather than a criminal nuisance. So they issue a ban on coastal trading to discourage them from landing. The Chinese have tried this before. The result was to create more pirates. The majority of the merchants are reasonably honest, but a man has to eat. So even an honest merchant is forced to become a pirate. The trade ban weakens the legitimate coastal economy and leads to less tax revenue to spend on hunting for lawbreakers. The ban won't be lifted until 1567, but as the Chinese proverb goes, the sky is high and the emperor is far away. In other words, when no one is looking, the sky is the limit. My take by Alex Shrug, the Portuguese are not as big a problem as the Chinese think. However, in overreacting to the Portuguese merchants, they turn these merchants into pirates, the very thing the Chinese did not want. When trade is organized and easy, piracy drops to a minimum and tax revenues go up because it's easy to pay a small tax and deliver your goods than to hassle with smuggling, uh, with smuggling and, and risk uh, of penalty. High penalties or bans on trading create more smuggling and outright piracy. In 1621, the Chinese refused to engage in official negotiations with the Dutch East India Company, but would negotiate with the illegal Chinese pirates and attempt to lure them away from their criminal ways. That was how the Dutch became pirates, because it was the only way that the Chinese would do business with them. In other words, the government's full of criminals, and they like to do business with other criminals, and then legitimize criminal behavior. Yeah, I guess that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it, though, and, and a more accurate understanding of the, the lesson here, when government bans something, they create an industry. They create an industry. Um, government should stay out of people's way as much as possible, no matter what your views are. If you're not an anarchist like me, that's, that's fine. But even if you're you know, a leftist, government should still stay out of people's way. Now, I don't know how you're going to pull off your leftist agenda with a government that stays out of people's way, but it should. If there's going to be tariffs and taxes on goods, then let them be what they are. Let them be easy to handle and let it be simple and let it be quick and let it be equivalent across the board so that everybody's on equal footing and then get the hell out of the way. Because if you don't, you actually incentivize that which you don't want. See, government has two ways that it incentivizes things. The first is through subsidy. And when we subsidize anything, not only do we have more of it, but the overall cost of it goes up. You say, Jack, when you subsidize something, the cost goes down. Look how cheap corn is because of subsidies. Yeah, there's no free lunch, guys. We're paying for it on the other end in taxation. If you had the money back and you weren't paying the subsidy, you'd be, you'd be able to have a fair negotiation, a fair market value of the product. So whenever we subsidize anything, there's lots of ways to subsidize something. We increase its number and we devalue it. An example would be college education. By making so many government programs available so that people could borrow money to go to college, we have created a surplus of college graduates through subsidy. And we have devalued the value of a four-year degree. A four-year degree is worth less today than it was in 1980. It absolutely is. It means less in the market. You go see somebody, do you have a degree? I have a degree in business administration. Okay. And it has a certain value to your, to your potential to go work for that company. And that value is lower today than 1980. I know it's hard to believe, but it is. Because there's so many people that have the degree. The lower the number of degreed professionals, the higher the value of the degreed professional. Very, very simple. We've made it where people that shouldn't be in college can go. 
That's one way you can, you can increase a market or increase the number of something. And that is when it's done legally. It's through subsidy. When it becomes a, a market through illegal means or a black market, it's through oppression. When government outlaws something, bans something, attempts to overtax something, it creates a secondary market, or as they call it, a black market, as I call it, an honest market. That's what black markets are. They're honest markets. Where, where buyers and sellers pay agreed upon rates with nobody getting in the way. And most people would prefer to sell legitimately above board rather than in a black market. Only when government becomes too oppressive do black markets become viable. So, for instance, you won't see somebody on the streets of Dallas, Texas, selling loose cigarettes for 75 cents a piece. You just won't see it. If you did, very few people would buy one except some guy jonesing for a, for a cigarette that happened to be walking by and got, the guy got lucky. And no one would complain. No one would care. As long as the guy didn't harass anybody when he was doing it, no one would care. No merchant would call the Dallas PD and go, hey, there's a guy selling loose cigarettes out here. It's costing me money. But in New York City, where we had a guy die because he was apprehended while doing this, merchants complained. And there was a market. And the guy was making money. Why? Because a pack of cigarettes cost about 12 bucks. Now, I don't smoke, and I don't think you should. And I really don't want to smell your stink while you smoke. But if you choose to smoke, as long as I don't have to smell your stink, go nuts with it. But when the government has over-tariffed the item, they've created a niche market for people to exploit. And they're going to do it. Both the buyer and seller decide, this is too much, let's do business on our own. That's my take by Jack Spirico. Government never seems to learn from this. Never seems to learn from this. Governments always end up with more tax revenue when they tax at lower rates. They always do because commerce increases. Um, there's an elasticity to markets. And it's a reality that a politician is just incapable of understanding, apparently. Anyway, or our current Ask Clown in Chief actually admitted that it was true and said it didn't matter because he was more concerned about it being fair. Whatever. Anyway, with that, let's talk about better things today. Let's bring on Mr. Jonathan Dowie. John is a great guy, good friend. First met him again in 2013, where he uh, helped rekindle my interest in ducks. Next thing you know, we had ducks in the Spirico Brooder. Today in 2015, John and I are both building successful backyard small farm businesses based primarily on ducks and duck products, specifically eggs. We have very different markets and we have very different climates and different challenges, different land types. So uh, we have different approaches to solving some of the same problems and some very similar approaches to some problems. So this will be a good show for you guys to get a broad understanding of ducks in both a cold northeastern temperate climate and a north Texas hot arid summer climate, the challenges that go along with that, predators, developing markets, everything else. This is a great interview. I really think you're going to enjoy it. And with that, I want to say, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, how are you? It's a pleasure to be on. Hey, man, I'm glad to have you on. You floated the idea to me a while ago. I'm like, yeah, get a get a form filled out. You've been down here and I've had you do a couple events and love hanging out with you, so it's cool to get someone like that onto the show. We have you on to talk uh, about a, a subject that's become near and dear to me, which is raising ducks. Uh, but you can help, I think, a lot of the things that, like, I don't know. When people are like, well, it gets 30 degrees below zero here. How do they like that? I'm like, I don't think they like it, but I think they're okay. But it doesn't do that here, which is why I live here. Uh, and you're one of these crazy people that live in New England, in New Hampshire. And uh, it's cold as shit up there. So 
Um, we'll talk about raising ducks from a temperate cold climate uh, perspective. Um, so could you tell us, though, first of all, just how did you even get into permaculture and ducks in the first place? Well, it's a, it's obviously it's always a long path, right, to uh, to where we end up now. Um, I started out as a kid raising ducks in upstate New York, uh, which is a little bit colder than it is here and a little bit more snowy. Um, and uh, we went through a lot of trials and tribulations back then in upstate New York, um, just with the cold and with uh, predators and all kinds of you know stuff like that. Um, and then I, my father was a, a very intensive organic gardener back in the uh, 70s and 80s, I would say. And I kind of was born into it, I guess, you know. Um, he was pretty uh, pretty deep into it in the sense that he would liquefy bugs and spray them on the plants, uh, you know, to try and repel their, their siblings or whatever. So um, it was pretty, you know, pretty intense. Um, I went through some city living after I left upstate New York. I left, uh, I left that tyranny state as quick as possible when I was 18. Um, lived in Rhode Island, lived in Massachusetts. I know that doesn't sound much better, but it is. Um, and I ended up in New Hampshire with uh, work. So we bought a house out here in Derry, New Hampshire, with a little tiny bit of land, really. You know, we have uh, 0.6 acres. And, uh, you know, once I bought a house, I had a little bit of a life change. I started looking around for, uh, you know, answers for uh, preparedness. And we ended up uh, listening to you, actually, is kind of where that led me, um, thanks to the whole uh, 12, 24, 12, whatever that was. I didn't believe in it, but it was just made you think, you know. Um, so I ended up listening to survival podcast and you started talking about permaculture a lot. Um, I rejected it at first cause I was already doing it a different way. Um, and I didn't want to change everything cause I frankly didn't have time. <laughs> and then the more I, you know, listened to permaculture and learned more about it and, and, and all that and got past the, uh, the, the earthy crunchy hippie part of it too. Um, as you had to do as well, I guess. Um, I looked at it and said, wow, this really makes a lot of sense. And, um, in every part of life, you know? So I started integrating some permaculture into the duck business that we had going on. That wasn't really permaculture at all. Um, it was more just, uh, it, you know, it wasn't confinement, but it was ducks, you know, in a pen and that's all they ever did. And a lot of that came from paranoia of, you know, predators that I had to deal with in upstate New York a lot, but, um, you know, so now we're kind of in a, a place where we're doing a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I've quit the full-time job, I'm not making a ton of money doing this stuff yet, but I bartend on the side. As you've talked about in the past, that can be very lucrative. <laughs> and uh, I'm doing that and running my own couple of businesses and doing the permaculture thing. And uh, we're doing ducks, so we're doing microgreens, and we're getting into meat rabbits, and we're doing quail. And so have a lot of things going on. Obviously, we grow a lot of food uh, as far as vegetables and stuff like that go. But very, that's where we are. Very cool, man. So, um my, my question for you then would be, what is the biggest challenge that you have raising your ducks in a cold climate? Well, it gets very tedious in the winter. Um, you know, you, you, you come into a situation where you're going through a really nice summer and everything's wonderful, and then, and then the snow starts to fly and the temperature drops. And uh, the number one challenge is keeping water thawed for the ducks. Um, obviously... You know, you can read online, it says, you know, well, ducks don't need to have water to swim in and all this, but uh, that's really not true. You know, they really have to be able to wash their eyes. They need to, they, they like and want to get into water. Um, you run into a situation in the winter where you can't let the ducks out, you know, ranging for the most part, especially in a small property like we have. Um, so they do end up 
kind of messy and they have to be able to clean off or they get really, really cold. Um, I know that that was mentioned on a, a previous interview with the uh, gentleman up in Canada. Um, and that's so true. They just have to have water to clean off and swim in. And they're just so much happier, um, which is part of your enjoyment out of having ducks, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that, that is one of your bigger challenges. I mean, I deal with it a little bit here, but if I go two days with things frozen, you know, up, it's unusual. Usually it's, it's frozen in the morning and by mid afternoon, even if the temps are below freezing, unless there's ice on the ground, everything's flowing again just from the sun hitting it. So what are some of the ways you deal with that? Well, we do, um, you know, a few different things. I've learned a lot, and it's funny because we're not even there yet. It's been five years, um, and we're not where we want to be with keeping water thawed. We, For the first year, we had a small enough flock to where the little blue heated water buckets that you can get a tractor supply for, I don't know, 20 bucks or something, um, those were great, you know. Uh, then you get to a point where you have a hundred ducks <laughs> and yeah. having, having 20 of those isn't really going to make a lot of sense. So we shifted to a, a stock tank heater in a kid pool, a lar- one of the larger uh, rigid plastic ones. But then we learned real quick that that thing eats up about six to eight bucks a day in electricity and mm-hmm. kind of ruins your business if you're trying to run a business. Um, so we do carry a lot of buckets of water more than once a day. Um, we, you know, you almost have to. We uh, we tried this year uh, something interesting where we did um, a five gallon bucket with the nipple waters in the bottom of it. Yeah. Uh, hung in a greenhouse, which is actually the Texas Prepper Two style greenhouse. Okay. Um, which is a great little structure. I love it. Um, we double coated that thing with plastic. Put ducks and chickens in there with a with a little door on the uh, the side opposite of the way the wind blows, whatever that word would be. <laughs> so leeward. I don't know. Um, and uh, we put a heat lamp in there, and a lot of days, even when it was 20 outside, we had above freezing in there, and that, that nipple water. We had one time where the nipples on it froze. Wow. Um, so that worked out well, and, and ducks I've found in the last couple of years do uh, react very well to those, and that's something we can get into a little later, but um, we've got a lot of good luck with those. Other than that, dark containers uh, filled with water. Uh, we keep a hose indoors that we drag out every day and fill things sometimes if we don't want to do the bucket method um, or we drag it out and fill the buckets out there to take it farther than it will reach. Um, but the next thing we're looking for this year and going into next year is, uh, and I'll, I'll keep you updated on this as it goes, is I went to a rocket mass heater class this year and it was really cool and really intensive and um, we're looking to build a rocket mass heater that's got a couple of 50-gallon drums cut in half dropped into the mass of, of Cobb and um, hoping to build some, you know, swimming tanks and a, maybe a, a, a nipple water out of that that'll hopefully stay thawed. So cool. and that'll obviously be a low-cost <clears throat> solution to the problem, you know. So you're raising 100 ducks. So what do you do to deal with things like – because you're like on a half-acre-ish. Yeah, tent, Dealing with like noise and stink, like so. I have a, a bigger area that should help this out a lot, but I'm up to close to 100 ducks myself now, and I have the whole like yard area lined with straw, and they go in there at night. You know, a big part of it is for protecting them from predators, and so that well, they'll lay their eggs there, not everywhere. And all the time when it's dry, it's not bad with stink. They build up enough. Poo, I throw down some more straw. That's fine. Rain, 
and the stink will knock you out. Now, it's out, we have three acres. It's out away from the house. There's no neighbors to smell it. But in a smaller environment, it's probably a, a bigger concern. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, and, that, and you nailed it. Uh, I remember listening a week or so ago, and you, you said the minute there's moisture, it's all over. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's so true. Uh, what we do, we have a main pen for, for the ducks uh, that is, I can't remember the dimensions. It's maybe 16 by 30-something, you know. Um, <clears throat> and then there's a shed inside of there. What we end up doing is we score free wood chips from a local company. Okay. Uh, guy up the street. We also have really cool neighbors, by the way. That, that <laughs> so, helps. That yeah, helps. And, yeah, and we, you know, when we've developed that, I mean, we're going to get into maybe some marketing later, but, <clears throat> you know, just like we developed the market, we developed um, the neighbors, you know, I guess, education-wise. Um, you know, first, we actually had a new neighbor move in, uh, and our our, na- our neighbor's probably 30 feet away, our closest neighbor. Um, and the lady next door passed away, unfortunately, and then a new neighbor moved in. And we were very nervous about that. Yeah. <laughs> so he moved in, and I looked out the window one day, and I saw him just looking over at the ducks, smiling away. And I thought, all right, this guy's cool. You know, this yeah. is great. Let's get him so, some eggs now. <laughs> yeah, right. We didn't have any, unfortunately. So uh, he was shoveling his roof that day, actually. Okay. <laughs> so, I got you. So, uh, but I went over and I talked to him, and um, and even under the circumstances we met where my Great Pyrenees jumped the fence and started barking at him on his own deck, um, we actually, you know, it turned into a good circumstance where he was saying, you know, uh, you know, I was watching the ducks and kind of like a mosh pit thing the other day, and it was one of the coolest things I ever saw, and I was like, this is perfect, you know. Um, but we also have to maintain our end of the bargain, obviously. So there's not a lot you could do about the noise unless you select breeds that aren't as loud. But even ducks that aren't as loud are loud. So sure. you're never getting away from that <clears throat> unless you keep a very small flock. Um, and you know, you'd put up some stockade fencing, I'm sure, and I'm sure that would help somewhat. But um, you know, we don't have that. We have basically, you know, just wire fencing. Um, but the smell thing, I think, is the most important thing, and you really just have to keep up with it. We do a deep litter method. Um, we let the ducks out in the summer, which helps obviously because that's when you're going to have your most smells. In the winter, when your layers of feces are frozen in between layers of ice and snow, yeah. you have no you have no problem. You Until know? it melts. Well, yeah, and that's we're going through. We're going through that right now, which is yeah. uh, that's a blast. You know, it's like because then the layers come together, if you can imagine. You know. Yeah. And it's wonderful. <laughs> so, of course, and then, you just shovel it all into a pile and hot compost it. So, well, yeah, that's exactly what we do, and and, and that's like it, it actually turns out to be a huge benefit if you do it right. Right now, we're using straw because our wood chip pile is frozen solid. Okay. Um, and we are putting some straw down. It's it's mitigating it somewhat, but really the straw you'll find just kind of comes together and forms like a mat in 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 the layers, which actually makes it a little harder to deal with later. But you got to do what you got to do to keep the smell down, you know. Yeah. Um, and that obviously it's not just about the smell of the neighbors; it's about the health of the ducks. You don't want sure. that that ammonia buildup smell. Obviously, isn't good for them. Um, and we're not running a confinement operation here, so we have to be on top of this stuff. Um, so we do we we do layer wood chips often. In the summer, um, we have tried to get the hot compost deep litter method rolling, and we've failed at that until, you know, hopefully this year. Uh, we, you know, we've had some success, but we, in my opinion, we haven't completely had success, so we failed, right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, Nicholas Burtner actually has a great video on YouTube about it um, that I ran into with a gentleman down in South America, I believe. Um, where and that that's the key to what we were doing wrong is you really have to have about two feet of carbon. Yeah. Um, 
And so we're going to go to that uh, this year as soon as this stuff melts and we can dig it out. Now, the advantage of the, the deep litter thing, too, is the way even the way we're doing it is uh, we pull that stuff out in the spring and pile it up out in the back part of our property and let it compost for, I don't even, I don't even touch it. I don't even turn it. I just you let it sit. It, you just let it go. Okay. Yeah, and it's wonderful. And uh, some of the stuff that just grows out of it is beautiful. Um <laughs> Like the year I came to actually your first uh, your your first uh, permaculture class the uh, the wood core bed class um, I had yanked everything out of there just before I came down and piled it up on the border of our property um, and we grew by accident and we learned something here with, about permaculture too probably a hundred butternut squash and a hundred <laughs> sugar pumpkins uh, and it was you're awesome feeding it to them and they're pooping out the seeds right yeah yeah. Yeah, and the interesting part about that, I looked into it and I researched it, and it turns out when you pass seeds through a duck's digestive system, the germinate rate, germination rate goes way up. Yeah. So, and there's been studies done on that. So, um, if you read Carol Deppie's book about uh, you know, feeding your ducks off your homestead, she talks about growing squash, and I'm like, well, you can just do that once and keep pulling that litter, you know, and, <laughs> and then it'll grow itself. Yeah. You're good to go. They feed themselves. <laughs> That's good to know because I'm putting, uh, a, a, about 300 feet of grapevine along my fencing, uh, in the next couple of weeks. And you know, I just did a show on this today, but if, uh, you, you put a grapevine every 16 feet, like for the first year, all it is is this little stick and that fence is just, so, so I'm going to plant, butternut all through there and all the open space until the vines mature. So um, yeah. I guess they'll be getting a lot of pulp. Yeah, yeah, and then you'll never have to buy butternut again. Yeah, awesome. Just keep firing it over there. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess another thing then is like, so feed. So I, I see on your notes you, you fodder. I've been doing uh, sprouted sunflower for my ducks because uh, it's fast. It's it's four days and it's good to go, and I do it with the bucket method. What, what are you giving your guys for fodder? Well, we've uh, experimented with a few different kinds of fodder. We've done the barley fodder, and, and as you pointed out, they're kind of just like whatever about it, you know. Um, it is something green in, you know, on the 10th of February for them. Sure. You know, which anything green, I, I think if you spray painted the snow green, they'd think it was wonderful, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, but we are do, we're actually doing the sunflowers now on, on your suggestion because we started uh, into the microgreens a couple weeks ago, you know, based off uh, – your show there and bought the book and uh figured what what a great layer to add to our business you know sure um so i uh i experimented with some just sunflower seeds from the feed store or whatever you know just whatever kind and uh you know just to give a test run to make sure we could even do this in our because you know we don't heat 24 7 either so you know our living room's 50 a lot of times so. sure um and they went well and i said okay i can just buy these and sprout these for the ducks you know like because you know, it is what it is for now. Like 40 pounds is 18 bucks. Let's see what happens, you know. Um, so we're, we're moving into sunflower seeds now, actually. I did rye in the past. That did well. They liked it. They love buckwheat. Um, yeah. And I did that. And I actually used to just, you know, fire down cover crops um, in the back for them and let it, you know, explode from buck, that area. How, how far were you growing that out before you, you fed it to them? Were they like little sprouts where they were just... The, the root coming out of them. I mean, how, how long did you? Because I've never done that, and I've I've thought about adding that too for some diversity, and because it's cheap. I mean, you can buy a buckwheat for sixty cents a pound as a cover crop mix. Yeah, it's pretty cheap. Um, I was doing exactly what I did with barley. I just soaked it for a few hours, threw it in the pan there, the the ten twenty tray, and uh, I had a system worked out where 
Um, this is before you came up with your bucket method, which I haven't tried yet. But I had a system worked out on one of those plastic shelves you buy from Home Depot. Sure. And I had blocks under the 1020 trays and holes in each end. So you could dump water in the top and it would just run down through the whole oh, thing. Cool. You know? Cool. And it, yeah, and it worked pretty good. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I was making some mistakes. You know, we weren't buying the best seed. Um, cause it's, it's hard, it, amazingly enough in New Hampshire, an agricultural state, supposedly, um, it's hard to procure some of this stuff. Um, sure. but, uh, I was doing, I was doing them all exactly the same way as I would do barley. Frankly. Okay. Cause okay. I just was like, yeah, we'll just do this, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, with the, with the, um, the sunflower, I'm now to, uh, three, three growing buckets. So it's a four day cycle, one day of soaking and then three days of growth and about, um, probably, two inches deep initial in the bottom of the bucket. By the time it's done sprouting for four days, it almost fills a bucket. So you're two inches of seed in the bucket? Yeah, roughly. Wow. I don't really look at it that way. I have a scoop, and I'm doing, oh, yeah. I was doing two scoops, and they kill it, so I went to four because wow. it's, it's a cheap feed source. I mean, the the freaking babies, the white ones that you would think it would get bullied, have like become addicted to them, and they just in numbers alone, they just push everybody out of the way in the morning. Wow. So I've gone to now where I feed like 60% of it, and then they all go off to do their thing. And when they leave, I put the rest out because yeah. nobody else was getting any. And the Muscovies don't seem very interested. Um, all the other ducks like it. The Muscovies will peck at it a little bit, but they're not as interested. The, 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 all the other breeds just, I mean, they just kill it like it's crack or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I, I don't know too much about Muscovies. I've only had two, and I've actually lost both of them. Um, but uh, – I, I, I don't know. Are they more of a fish eater, I guess, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, they're, well, they're South American <laughs> tropical bird. You yeah. Know, they're not, they're like every duck that you and I raise, except them, comes from the mallard. There's yeah. other ducks in the wild, but everything that's been domesticated came from the mallard. And mm-hmm. if you look at um, a Metzer 300 or, a, uh, you know, Rowan's still look like their lineage, but a lot, you know, a Cayuga or something, there's been an awful lot of change between mallard and what we grow in our backyard. Even the Rowans, look at the size difference alone. And yeah. then you look at a Muscovy, and you look at a Muscovy in the wild, and there ain't a hill of beans of difference unless they've been bred to be white. Uh, yeah, they they are the same wild bird. So, you know, this, they're really a, a jungle swamp bird. So a sunflower is probably not likely to show up there. Um, and I think they just I don't know about how yours were. Mine are very big on the grass. They don't eat as much feed in general as the other ducks. They they like grass and they're constantly hunting. Um the other ducks seem to hunt in the summer when there's a lot of bugs. The muscovies, I see them snapping at the ground, you know, like running through and, and, and predatorizing constantly. So I guess they're just a different cycle, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting with them. Um, I, I don't have too much experience with them other than I, you know, I know they're, um, you know, they're like you said, they're the only one not to ride from the mallard. I thought they were really cool, you know. Oh, well, they're and, awesome. Uh, <clears throat> they're, I mean, they're great. I've got two brooding right now and. I thought that it was one of my uh, Swedish females was um, laying eggs underneath her. Apparently, the one Muscovy and the Swedish are taking turns sitting. Yeah. Because I just went in there now, and it's way past when they lay, and the Muscovy decided to take a, a you know a, a feed break and leave the nest, and the Swedish is sitting on top of her eggs. So um, I'll let that go because the pile of eggs under there is, like, stupid. It's I, yeah. I can't see how they're all going to hatch, but... 
Yeah, I've been I've been there with the eggs. Uh, I've actually never had a duck hatch an egg for me. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I've had ducks. They say are will go broody and what and whatnot. I've had a uh, I had a great um, magpie that we actually adopted from the um, farm pound essentially around here where they people with they lose their farm all the animals go there and they had one female and like 50 males <laughs> so that wasn't going to go well um so we brought her home and she wanted she went broody and she seemed to do well and then it, you know just nothing happened like uh they will just keep throwing eggs in there and yeah. uh and i've had a muscovy last year my i tried to let my muscovy do that and she was doing the same deal i think what it is is the muscovies are broody and um the uh, Swedish will go broody, but they really don't know what they're doing. They don't stay, right? So yeah, and and it's the same with the other breeds. But the, I have blue Swedish from Metzer Farms. They're really nice birds. I bought them off a lady who got them and started losing them to fox up here, and um, they're doing great. It's they're I've had them for three years now. They're doing great. Um, but they, you know, they want to go broody and all, but they just are. They have no idea. Yeah, it's yeah. been bred. It's been bred out of them. Bred out so. of them. Yeah, where the muscovs. I mean, they'll do it. And my girls are probably right now, based on cycle, twelve days from hatch. Cool. Uh, minus whatever else has been shoved under that it's timed out. You know, in a weird timing out. So I don't know. I hope that maybe if my dyslexic little uh, Swede, maybe she'll take over the nest for the last few days. And if not, I'll pop them in an incubator and see what happens. But um, yeah. we should have a bunch of new babies peeping around here soon. Cool. Um, now, I've got about the same number of ducks you do, and i got a lot more land. I'm doing a paddock shift system. Are you doing that on your small piece of land? I mean, because they can overgraze certain areas if you don't. Yeah, we do. Um, everything that I do is, is done in an AD, ADD uh, chaotic method. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so they get a, uh, a very unorganized paddock shift, essentially. Like, I've... Um, I took on a, a huge meat flock one year, and... Um, you know, the guy backed out on me and whatever. Uh, we ended up getting, you know, uh, breaking even, which is nice. But uh, we took on a huge meat flock. We were going to lease some land. We ended up, uh, the guy backed out before that happened. So we, we put him on our land, and we didn't have much growing here. When we took this land over, it was essentially a tow truck driver just buried cars back there. Um, so we put all these meat ducks on it and let them just burn it off, you know? Yeah. So then I, so you have the clean slate, which is nice. And it's a little more fertilized than it was, you know, cause duck poop's a little more fertile than motor oil. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we have cover cropped and stuff and I've let some of the natural stuff come back in and, and whatever the, you know, whatever the passing birds drop and so on. Um, and we do, you know, I'll put them in an area and we don't have a structured way to do it. We just kind of, you know, we, we go on instinct. We know. You know, I've I've read Salatin's books and all that, and we know the system. You know, so when grass is in a teenage state, it's more nutritious, and you don't want to kill it. And so you just kind of put them where you're going to put them on a small a piece of land like this. What's convenient for you at the time, and then you move them when it's time to another place that's convenient for you, depending on what you have going on. You know, I mean, we just we took a puppy on last year in April, so hmm. you know that impacted a lot. Um, so last year was kind of very very unorganized paddock shift. We also shift them into the garden. Like right now they're on our garden, um, doing their thing, you know, which has been wildly successful, frankly, you know, like the stuff I grew out of my garden last year was out of control. Um, and you know, just an annual garden. And we put the ducks on it at the end of the year to burn it off and eat everything. And then we let them on it when we're not growing. Um, we, our plan was to leave them on it all winter, but then we had problems with hawks. Um, and then now they're on it again. And they're just, uh, it's just, you know, uh, it's covered with duck poop, 
which is going to, then we're going to cover that with wood chips and we're just going to plant. It's going to be great, you know? Awesome. Awesome. So how do you deal with predators? I mean, you're, you're in a pretty heavily predated area, honestly. I mean, we have to worry about hawks here, but between the dogs, they're the, you know, the last fox. Actually, the last fox that came over our fence was when we saw the chickens and the rooster beat the shit out of the fox. Wow. So that was pretty cool. Upgrade. Uh, yeah, upgrade, man. He pimp slapped that fox. And I, I think it was just like the fox could have easily killed him, but he was so blown away that this bird just ran out and T-boned him. Um, but the, I mean, I have a 140 pound German shepherd. A fox that comes on this property is going to be fox, yeah, flying spray of pink. Um, so we don't have too much trouble with the foxes. I'm actually, when I move them to their new digs, I'm going to put, uh, electric around their holding area. I haven't ever had to really do that, but I think it's, it's cheap and simple and there's power there. So why not? Uh, you've got a lot of predatory activity. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I grew up with a lot of it, so I mean, I was blessed, I guess, as a kid to deal with all that, you know, all of that, emotionally and and uh, you know, mechanically, like, you know, because when you're uh, 12 and you're holding, you know, ducks that have had half their head chewed off by a weasel that's still alive, it's pretty, uh, you know, it'll motivate you to uh, protect your birds, you know. Um, and then it's my advice to anybody that ever wants to get ducks is think about, you know, the phrase a sitting duck, you know. It's so true. Ducks really have no defense. Domestic ducks. They, you take away the one real defense that a wild duck has when you have a, you know, a too fat to fly domestic duck, you know? Um, so they really don't have much going on. I mean, the Muscovies kind of do, and I thought they did until I lost mine to a hawk, actually. Um, but, uh, they got nothing going on. So really, you know, you have to know what your predator population is, and you have to know how to live with them. And how to work with them, essentially. Um, you're never going to shoot everything, okay? And a lot of people are like, ah, you know, I'll just get my shotgun loaded. Yeah, right. You know, you're, not, you're really going to shoot everything. And in my environment, with 0.6 acres in my neighbor's house 30 feet away, I can't shoot anything legally. Um, you know, I probably could get away with it, but I'm not going <laughs> to, you know? So we've learned to live with them. Um, we have fox, we have fisher cats, we have weasels. I came face to face with a mink and a couple of her kits or whatever that would be last year in the, on our river. We have a river on one side of our house. Um, you know, I was three feet away from this thing chattering at me and yelling at me and my ducks were 20 feet from me. Um, <clears throat> we've found that, and, and, and it's so, it's counterproductive to shoot everything, I guess is what I'm getting at. And it's also a lot of places, you know, oh, I have a farm, I have a big barn, I have 500 barn cats and, um, you know, they kill everything in sight, the barn cats. So a lot of people, especially where I'm from in upstate New York with the big old dairy farms and whatnot, they lose ducks because the fox and so on have no, have nothing else to eat, you know? Mm-hmm. So a fox would probably rather, you know, kill a chipmunk or a field mouse or a squirrel or a rabbit or whatever sure. than deal with jumping over your fence, dealing with your dog or whatever, you know? Um, <clears throat> but if you kill that population of fodder animals off, you, you know, you have to deal with your predators, which is, you know, I grew up in upstate New York in a time of really a lack of wildlife, if you can imagine it. Um, you know, I would, I would turkey hunt when I was a kid and there was nothing, <laughs> you know, now, now turkeys hang out with the deer in my, my parents' garden, you know? Yeah. We're from similar areas. I, I remember the, 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 the eighties were not like it is today with the yeah. population. There's been a real rebound up there. Yeah, definitely. Like just now, we just drove through New York, and uh, we drove three miles. And I had to have counted four hundred deer on the throughway. It was mm-hmm. insane. Um, and they really, New York really needs to get their uh, their head out of their ass and start bringing people in from out of state to hunt. To hunt, yeah. I mean, I uh, 
I have to tell you, when I was a kid, and I grew up in Pennsylvania, I, I was pretty successful as a deer hunter, but we hunted really hard to get a deer or two a year. Yeah, absolutely. And I used to watch like shows on like the Outdoor Channel and stuff like that, or the predecessor to it back then. And when they would show these fields with like 20 deer standing around in them, I used to think that's bull. There's <laughs> there's nowhere where it's like that unless they stalk the deer or something. I I just didn't believe that deer looked that you you saw deer that way. That, that, yeah. that there'd be 10 bucks in a field together. Bullshit. Every buck I've ever seen has been by it. You know, I didn't believe it because I never saw it. Yeah, it's really uh, it, it blew my mind. I've never seen anything like it until this year, and uh, I mean, it was herds, and they looked healthy too. I mean, they were fat, you know, and uh, yeah, it was cool. Um, but yeah, so we've we've worked with the predators. I've never killed a predator here. Um, I've only lost three birds to predators in five years. That's acceptable, you know. Yeah, and, and yeah, two were this year, and 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 it was weird. Like I had a Muscovy that I didn't want to pen up because she was a free spirit, man, and <laughs> she used to fly into the river and hang out. And I'm yeah. like, what, whatever, she can do what she wants. And then one day I saw her getting killed by a hawk, you know. Yeah, and that sucked. Yeah. But hey, man, she lived free and she died free, right? Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, she's in the right state for it too, right? So yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> um, I mean, and then like the hawks are the ones that are a problem for some people because. There is the instance where, like, a hawk will figure out, oh, you have birds. Yeah. Eat birds. And that and that hawk will just basically decide, I'm going to make a living off of this. And it'll just come back every other day and pop a bird. And that's when it really becomes a problem. Yeah, and we – uh, so we lost that one. And a week later, we had him in the garden area, which is not covered. So our main pen is covered – uh, by and and I'll tell you what you know some advice if you can score the backdrop netting off of a hockey rink that they're taking oh. down and oh, it's great stuff man I've had it up <laughs> for four years, um, but then we had him in the garden and we lost one of our little buff ducks and it was probably the dominant buff duck which makes you think you know what did that duck do to get killed, mm-hmm. um, but you know then we so we held off for two weeks didn't let him back into that spot and now we got him back out there we haven't had a problem but the snow is also melting and the water's open and you know i've seen rabbits and i've seen more activity so it's really about you know what do you have around you you got to evaluate what you have going on like i've had you know when we first had our first pen that i built out of uh two by threes and hardware mesh six sides okay nothing was ever getting into that except for a bear and um I woke up one day, looked out the window, and saw a fox in the middle of the day this time of the year, curled up right outside the pen, just looking at him. You know, beautiful yeah. animal. Yeah. You know, red fox. And uh, I went out there and looked at her and just was like, okay, like, what am I going to do? You're not doing anything. And she just took yeah. off. And yeah. <clears throat> so you got to know your predators and you got to know what they're eating, essentially. And if you have a, a situation like I had as a kid in upstate New York, you got to go to real great measures to protect your birds, you know? Um,. Or get a livestock dog and train it well, or you know put up put up some real serious fence. You know, um, here we've been very lucky. Like I said, I have a river bordering one side of me um, that kind of wraps around, and there's a big mountain on the other side, and there's a lake through the woods on the other side. So we've we've been we've had a little bit of luck and a lot of experience, and uh, you know, doing the right thing and, and thinking the right way. I think is the right way to go, though. You you got to realize a duck has no defenses. You're its defense. Yep. You got you to gotta know what's going on around you and exactly what you need to do. I researched fisher cats for probably six weeks before we really started, you know, putting up uh, um, infrastructure here. Um, because fisher cats, raccoons, they'll go right through chicken wire, no problem, yep. with their little claws. Uh, weasels will squeeze right through 
you know, anything bigger than a half inch. Yeah. And, 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 to, and in my opinion, weasels are probably one of your worst enemies because they'll show up and just wipe something out. They won't take the carcass. They'll just kill it essentially and suck its blood out or whatever it's going to do. Uh, Ben Falk actually had some problems recently with weasels out there. Um, and I, he ended up trapping him, I guess, and which is a good way to go, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, what amazes me is I've never had a problem with raccoons, and I would just expect to here. <laughs> yeah, I think if you're avid, I don't have any ear here either. I've never seen one, and that's actually kind. Of, it's funny. I always say that's the one thing I'll shoot if I see it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe um, no. <clears throat> yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe they know about my scotch-infused raccoon uh, massacres in, in in Arkansas. The word got out or something. We have possums, but they never bother anything. They they steal feed. They don't. I've, yep. I've never had a possum predate on any of my animals. And most of our hawks are those small Cooper's hawks, and they don't okay. seem to real. They kind of come around and they check out the ducks. And I think what they're thinking is, oh, I could kill that, but I can't carry it. Yeah, and I'm and gonna that, have to sit out in the middle of that field with that big ass effing dog and try to eat this thing in the open, and I don't really want to do that because the smaller chickens, they if they killed one of them, they're just gone with it. Yeah. Uh, they're not carrying a you know a three pound Cooper's hawk is not carrying away a six pound duck. No, no way. They just can't do it. They don't have the air left, you know. Well, even my Pythonism there, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. You know, they can't do it. Yeah, even my uh, the two I lost to hawks this year were red-tailed hawks. They're big, you yeah, know. And, they, uh, yeah, they they'll do it. Yeah. It, well, they didn't. They just killed it and ate it where it stood. Really? And, uh, yeah. And my really? dog, uh, my dog went crazy, and then it took off. But it kept coming back for the kill because it was in. They it did was come back. Yeah, and it was um, the first one got killed kind of on a little island in that river. Nothing could get to, you know, and it was just there for a week or so, and the the hawk kept eating it. It was frozen, you know. So, so what's your brooder setup like? I uh, built – well, we used to do what you did with the totes and all that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it turns into a stinky, you know, mess. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, as you know, and you actually had some cool stuff going on there and some stuff I thought about doing, but they grow so quick you go, ah, whatever. Yeah. Um, with the with the water trap thing you built, that that's pretty cool. That saved our – we had to put them in, in – get them in very deep winter this year for us anyway. Yeah, we didn't want to brood them out in the garage because we've had problems with rats getting into the brooders in the garage, and a rat oh, yeah. will just kill everybody. Um, and I wanted to do them in the house, and I was like, "The stink! I got to do something." And that little water trap, uh, that was a prototype, and I think it could be done better. And it's so effective because you know what they do: water goes everywhere. Oh yeah. And so what I've done is I um I built out of wood and hardware mesh, a uh, pretty good size brewer. I think it's four by three or something like that. It's, you know, it's pretty decent size for birds. I had 150 ducks in it at one point. Okay. Um, you know, for a week. <laughs> so, um, but I built that it's hardware mesh floor. I put wood chips down, um, cause their feet don't react well to hardware mesh, frankly. Um, and I did a, the five gallon bucket with the nipple waters, but then I took the base to one of the big, uh, you know, waters you buy a tractor supply, the plastic thing you twist onto the base. Yeah. Uh, the red base there. I put that that's, you know, a little bigger than the five-gallon bucket underneath, um, right on the hardware mesh with no no wood chips under it. And the ducks actually, you know, they go crazy about the water coming out of the, the nipple water at first. But then they yeah. realize they're not swimming in this. So they kind of yeah. go, okay, that's for drinking, and they kind of give up on it. Um, so they drink out of it. They spill a little. It falls into that tray. They drank that water out of the tray, and I actually ended up with a really dry brooder, which was 
the first time. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's impossible. (laughs) It is. It is. So, and you know, they, it's always a disaster with the brooder, but it actually ended up pretty dry. It's cool. I have my quail in there right now. Um, it's turned into an awesome thing to build. If you're going to do birds, you really should have something like that because it's, it's, it's been the triage pen, you know? Mm hmm. Um, it's been the brooding pen, obviously. Now it's my quail cage until I get something better going on. Um, you could just do so much with it. It's just something, and it was so easy. I mean, you're talking four two by twos, eight feet high, and a platform and hardware mesh. You know, how long do you brood your ducks before you get them onto the ground? So here I do it as quick as I can, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've I've put, you know, I, well, so I built that fortress pen. I call it the fortress, right? Because if I ever have a problem, I could put enough birds in there to really protect them from anything. Um, so I have a two a PVC pipe with two five-gallon bucket nipple water system built into that thing now. Yep. Um, so I brood indoors until I'm like, okay, you know, it's a feel thing to me. It's, you know, and, and this whole thing about ducks, you know, you're, oh, yeah, they got to be 98 degrees. Like, hey, come on. No, Bull. no, they don't. Yeah. Well, where is it 98 <laughs> degrees when a duck is born in the United yeah. States? Where? Exactly. And then, well, and on top Tucker of that, the, them. yeah, you, you see ducks that are two days old following mom to the water. Don't I, I don't yeah. buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that speaks to the water thing, too. Like they say, don't don't swim a duck that's under like 10 or 14. I don't even know anymore because I ignore it. Yeah. I throw my ducks in the bathtub here in, in two days. <laughs> and there, I mean, there's videos on our Facebook page. Where it's like and, and, you know, we came into a, a over the five years we've come into a place where we say it's not spring around here until there's ducks in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's just the coolest thing you'll ever see. You know, I mean, duckling swimming—they start to dive. One does it, then they all do it. They follow each other. It's it takes the them like thing. two seconds to figure out what they're supposed to do. When you say duck to water, man, it's real. They—it's it, amazing what they're born knowing how to do. Yeah, yeah, it's great, and it's the only what? It's the only bird I think in the world or something born knowing how to swim the first day. Maybe geese, I don't know, but yeah. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I keep them indoors until I feel like it's okay to put them out, and I think it about. 14 days, you know, here I, yeah, yeah, I put them out in 50 degrees and they're fine. They'll huddle together. I give them a heat lamp, you know, that's what I did too. I put up wind breaks. You can't just stick them out in 50 degree weather with 20 mile an hour winds. (laughs) So, you know, I give them plenty of bedding, but here it's like the quicker you can get them acclimated to the cold, the better off you're going to be. And I've never really lost. Actually, I don't think I've ever lost a duck ling a duckling to the cold i've lost last year we had a particularly harsh winter where we didn't get a break in the cold for probably eight weeks and i actually lost for the first time in my life i actually had a duck freeze to death outside um and i've I've never seen it since who knows what the factors were involved in that but but it was just it looked like a duck that just sat down and froze my inkling has been that there's more potential for a duck to end up wet and unable to get dry in a brooder than outside Absolutely. And so they're less likely to have a problem with being cold outside than in the brooder, even though it's counterintuitive, because they can dry off outside. Yep. And if there, I've ever seen a duckling that's unhappy with cold, you know, other than extremes, it's been because it's been wet and unable to get dry. Yeah, the wet thing, like, so when we swim them on the first day or second day, I mean, they're in there for, you know, a minute, if yeah. not. <laughs> and then they come right out into a heat lamp tote and they dry off and they start, yep. they learn, they learn how to preen at that moment, you know, which is great. Um, cause I've had ducks that don't preen and they die, you know, and, yeah. and I find it the sooner you swim them, the sooner they learn how to preen from each other and the better off you have a rate of survival. I mean, 
if you treat them a little more rugged than than the you know the people handling with with uh, you know whatever padded gloves on the internet do, yeah. like like you've said, the ladies that you know that's like the the chill- chicken thing. It's what a teacup chickens. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Teacup ducks. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I obviously don't just throw them out there two weeks and go, okay, whatever, you know. But uh, you know, you have to judge it. You have to look at your weather forecast. You know, okay, if it's gonna be rainy, I'm not sticking them out there. Obviously, you do. I do have a cover on it too. Um, I bought those wavy uh, plastic panels from Depot or whatever. Yeah, and it's it's got a you know they don't get wet. Um, so they, I put them out at you know 50 degrees or so, sometimes even 40 with the right heat lamps. Yep. At a couple couple three weeks old, once they start, you start to see those little pin feathers coming in. Um, like I said, good bedding, keep them fed because they, they have to generate heat, you know, um, plenty of water and, uh, covered dry and you're good to go, you know, and yeah, you get, uh, you get stronger, healthier ducks that way, you know, and they are tough, man. So I don't know if you saw the latest duck chronicles I put out yesterday, but somebody called Dorothy and said they had a, a duck they found in the backyard and they didn't know what to do with it and they were feeding it grapes. <laughs> so Dorothy's like, well, obviously, if they're feeding it grapes, they don't know what the hell they're doing. So she said she'd take the duck. Well, they bring us the duck, and we're thinking, like, it's like a, you know, you find it in your backyard, you're thinking it's like an adult duck. And I figure, we'll just whip the duck in with our other ducks. No, it's like two weeks old. Of course. And it looks like it's a little peckin' is what it looks like. So uh-huh. then we have this duck screaming its brains out because it's alone. Yep. So I sent her to the feed store to get some friends. Right. Mm-hmm. Somebody said on the YouTube channel we should name her Barbie because we had to buy her friends. Uh, <laughs> hopefully she's a girl, but well, my luck it's a Drake. And my yeah. luck, the other five are Drake. So she goes down there, she goes by these five Drakes, and she's like, I wanted turkeys too. Uh, so I'm like, okay, as long as you understand that if we raise turkeys, they're like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's turkeys. Yep. Right. You know, they're, they're four eating. She's, yeah, that's fine. I like to eat turkeys. So she also got three poults. These poults are like a week old, so they tower over these ducks. Yeah. The littlest runt rowing duck we have bullies the hell out of the poults that they're they're being brooded with right now. Like if there's food and the pult the poults come over, that little duck just like charges into them. <laughs> I have never seen an animal as tough as a duck, honestly, for that type of size or poultry, I would say. They're like Mack trucks. Yeah, they really are. I mean, you just sometimes they amaze you, you know, what they do. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, I had Narragansett's in with my ducks for a while and, uh, I never really had any problems to the very end. I actually got rid of them because one flew down off a perch and landed on a duck and that was bad, you know? Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it was kind of obviously probably timing and angle and everything too involved yeah. with that, you know? But, uh, yeah, they're, they're just little, you're right. They're little tanks. So they go through whatever, you know, yeah. uh, they, they go through and that's, you know, when it snows here and this is funny, I, I ran into you at Liberty forum a couple of years ago and I was telling you the story about how, you know, we had a blizzard and we get three feet of snow and we had to lock the ducks away, which is something that's another winter prep thing you have to think about, you know? Um, so we have to pen them up when there's a blizzard and you, you can't do it for long because humidity goes way up in that room. Um, and then you're going to take humid ducks that are probably covered with some feces and let them out into the cold, you know? Good. So you got to time it right. You got to watch the weather real well. Um, we let them out. And it was the, just one of the coolest things I ever saw. They, they plowed right through the snow. You know, they're pushing each other through the snow. Yeah. They make little paths and whatnot. Within an hour, they had the whole pen just pretty much like, okay, we can walk around wherever we want now. <laughs> yeah, they, they melt the snow, man. They did. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they eat it too, which is kind of wild, you know. Um, <laughs> and then they, they – so they, I had this pool, a kiddie pool that I had scored for free, you know, whatever, with a slide on it because I would never buy a duck pool oh. slide. Yeah. 
And we were always talking about, oh, would it be cool if the Ducks slid down the slide? You know, they never did it in the summer. Um, in the winter, though, it was great. So we had the stock tank heater in that pool, and that blizzard happened, and they were pushing each other through the snow, and we ended up with 10 Ducks sliding down the slide. <laughs> <laughs> and that was cool. That's the day we started carrying our cell phones with us all the time to record stuff because we didn't get that on tape, unfortunately. But but they'll just they'll blow your minds with some of the stuff they do and and uh, you know the entertainment they provide is just. I, know, I like the way they move together. Like I, I went outside just before I called you for today's interview and filled up one of the kiddie pools and checked on the because I got the 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 duck the like when I say <laughs> outside I mean like permanently outside because right now with six ducklings and three poults. Yeah, the, the ducks are probably the youngest ducks she just got are probably like five days old. Wow. They're out all day long because it's beautiful out right now. They go out there in the day and we just bring them in at night, and that way they're only in the brooder for like you know eight hours overnight. Um, so I went out there to check on them, make sure they had water, make sure they had shade and what have you. Because believe it or not, we need shade for them down here already. Um, and at that point, all the white ducks that had been out on you know the the Metzers that had been on pasture all day long decided it was time to come back for a snack. So one duck doesn't come back. The whole troop of 50 of them yep. in a line, and they just come marching on in. And, like, that's when you look at them compared to a chicken, and you're like, this is so much more fun. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, uh, I don't know, just the stuff, the way they move, the stuff they do, the way they walk. I mean, you can just watch them for hours, really. You know, you just stand there and watch them, and it's just, you know, I think, I think that's why we get along with our neighbors, because, you know, how do you hate a duck, you know? Yeah, it's hard, <laughs> man, you know? They have, tail, they have personality. Yep. Let's move into like the because you're not doing all this just for fun. You you do this for some level of business. Yep. So let's move into some of the business side stuff. But let's start out first with like the inputs, like the cost, the labor, the food, all of that stuff. Yeah, we've had to um, go through some things with feed. Uh, we were just you know New Hampshire. You'd think, like I said, would have this huge agricultural thing going on, um, and they don't. I mean, the only feed mill left in New Hampshire is owned by Kent Foods, which is Blue Seal. You know. Um, so it makes it tough. You have, you're kind of at their mercy unless you're going to buy a ton of food at a time and have it trucked in from Vermont, um, which is, looks like a great feed, but it's also, you know, 50 cents a pound, which is inhibitive if you want to make any money selling eggs, you know. Um, so we were just running a regular Blue Seal chicken layer feed for the longest time at about, you know, 30 cents a pound or something like that, 20 cents, 25, 28. Um, they came out with a no corn, no soy feed. And over this last season or this last winter, we were going to go all organic this year and charge way more for the eggs. But up here at 50 cents a pound, you got to charge eight bucks a dozen. And I, I couldn't really find people that want to pay eight bucks a dozen. So we're at, you know, we're in that just under that range. I don't want to say a price that we sell for right now because I have a store in town that I sell to them for less and they have to sell for a little more than we sell on farms. Sure. So we don't, we don't advertise that, but, uh, you know, we had to go up a little. Um, but this, this no corn, no soy feed is nice because I had people that wanted to buy eggs that are allergic to soy, um, and we were able to make the move, and I don't want to eat any more soy than I have to. <laughs> sure. So, so that's nice. But, uh, you know, and it's comparable in cost. There's like a buck a bag more or something like that, or maybe two. Um, so we're there now, and I've looked at milling my own feed and all that, and it's pretty, you know, just even getting that stuff is is pretty much impossible. You know, good luck in New Hampshire for some reason. Good luck getting a bag of, of field peas, you know, organic field pea or whatever. Um, you can't get it anywhere, and it's tough. You know, you have to grow some of your own stuff to supplement, um, and then you just kind of you're kind of at the mercy of the of Kent Foods right now, you know. 
Um, you know, don't get me wrong, the people down at the feed store are great people, <laughs> you know, but, sure. but you're kind of just it, you know, you're held hostage by the, by the major conglomerates around here. Um, somebody tried to open up in Maine, went out of business, you know, um, so that's been a challenge, but you know, I know you have a, you have an organic feed source down there. Yeah, I actually don't use it. It's not really an organic feed. It's, they call it a natural feed. So oh, yeah. there's some conventional stuff in it, but there's no GMOs. And there's no soy. It's peanut-based. And what's been interesting to me is I've absolutely seen, to me, conclusive proof that people that have soy allergies, when they eat a product from an animal that consumes soy, the allergies tend to transfer over. I've seen nothing to indicate that with peanut. Wow. So we have people that are like, you know – that have peanut allergies that eat our eggs that don't have any problem at all, even though the ducks are eating peanuts. And I guess it's, I think it's because I don't know that people are allergic to soy. I think it's more the hormone screw up that soy causes with the phytoestrogens. And I think that it's not soy that's coming through in the egg or the meat product. It's a phytoestrogen. So it's elevating the animal's estrogen. So that's elevating the estrogen. So you're eating an elevated estrogen product. Yeah. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Where peanut doesn't really do anything to the hormones. And so we're using it's most it's a peanut meal base, so that gets the protein up there. And it's got it's got some corn and sorghum and other things in it, uh, but a lot of field pea and stuff like that. And we're paying, I think, right at twenty dollars for a fifty pound bag. So just under fifty cents a pound. And for us to make money, yeah, we we're selling at seven fifty a dozen. Yeah, see, I would do twenty bucks a fifty pound bag. That's saying, but I'm at, I'm at twenty six if I want to yeah. buy this stuff. And that's that last little bit that kills you. Yeah, and then I mean, then you got carton costs. You have electricity. You have your time and labor. You have yep. you know theoretically. I mean, I guess we don't own the house anyway, so I don't usually count that in. But I have you know you have to maintain fences and whatnot, and um, you know you got to buy birds. <laughs> so. my, my response to anybody that's complaining about the price, if we had any, because nobody's bitched yet, is yeah. go buy the other duck eggs. Yeah, because where we live, there isn't. Okay, yeah. right. So, what we've done to to mitigate the carton cost is we sell for seven fifty, yeah. the fifty cent carton deposit. Just like when you bought, you know, back in the old days when beer came in returnables, there was two dollar deposit on the bottles, but you got it back when you brought the case back with the bottles in it. Yeah. So that incentivizes us to not be wasting the the cartons. I don't know how it is for you, but I have to sell. In an unmarked carton, so I can't recycle store cartons. I have okay. to have the contact information for my farm on the on the carton. Mm-hmm. So we need our cartons to come back, and yeah. we'll tell customers, customers say, "Well, I have a carton from Kroger's or whatever." You can bring your carton here. You can take your eggs after you buy them and stick them in your carton, and you can give me my carton back, and I'll give you the fifty cents off. But yep. I can't put your eggs in that carton and sell them to you. <clears throat> yeah, and we're. Pretty much at the same spot, actually, and it's funny. I mean, I was, I was, in the, I've been in a restaurant business for 21 years, you know, as a manager for 12. I know the food safety regulations in and out and through and through. Um, and some of the stuff makes sense. We contacted our local health department um, in the beginning and the state actually, and it was funny. The state said, and I shouldn't say this on a podcast probably, <laughs> but the state said we don't have any regulations for duck eggs, just chicken eggs. And I went, that's cool. And they weren't happy about that answer, but whatever, you know. Yeah. That's um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's in New Hampshire. It's, it's live free or die trying now is what it really is, but whatever. Um, but we, uh, and then I contacted the local department and he said, yeah, it's, you know, we don't have any regulations for duck eggs, but he's like, uh, you know, I would request though that you 
don't reuse cartons because you don't know what people do with those cartons in the refrigerator when they are out of your, you know, possession. And, um, label them, uh, keep below 45 degrees and, you know, please put, uh, you know, whatever grading and, uh, um, size on them just for consumer goods and label them that they're farm fresh and from your farm, which I was going to do most of that anyway. <laughs> so, um, they were cool. Uh, I didn't have any problems with doing any of that stuff. That's very easy. I mean, it's, you just incorporate it under your labeling anyway, which you're going to do in your marketing steps, you know, good labeling goes a long way. Um, and we sell in stores. We don't reuse any cartons from stores at all. We don't, cause we just don't get them back. Um, although we've had, cause we sell in a health food store around here and they, um, you know, they do, I uh, have customers that are obviously concerned about the environment and they want to bring them back. And I, I do take them. I say, yeah, sure. I'll take them. And I compost them, you know? Um, and I have people that bring me eggs from, you know, from the local supermarkets or egg cartons from the local supermarkets that I, I just take them, you know, I'm not going to tell people no and discourage them. You know, why would I, why, why create a negative feeling over something that they're trying to do that's positive? Sure. Um, so, you know, we'll take the step back, but we do that whole, you know, we, I have a lady, that we put her name on the carton and when she brings, when we get her eggs, she brings it back and we actually deliver locally. Um, which is, you know, we, we needed to though in the beginning to create the market, you know, we, we ran up against, uh, you know, like you did a place where no one had duck eggs. And, you know, if you went North of here, people had duck eggs, but nobody down here in Southern New Hampshire was really doing them. Um, and, and actually some of the people that were kind of doing them for themselves had so many extra eggs, like, you know, I, I would run out of eggs and I'd go on Craigslist to try and fill an order and, and see if I could find someone doing it like I was, you know, and refer to the business or whatever. I ended up running into a guy that had a, a giant mixing bowl full of Cayuga duck eggs that were like all green and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I went and checked out his farm and he was doing exactly what I was doing. And I said, all right, you know, we'll sell these, but we'll let the consumer know where they came from, you know. Um, and that worked out. But so so there was no market here. And when we took over and, and I, you know, my wonderful fiance kind of dealt with me in the beginning cause she's the city mouse and I'm the country mouse. Right. Um, and she, uh, you know, I looked at her and I said, we're going to create a market for duck eggs in this area. And you know, next year it's going to happen. And this is three years ago now. And it, there maybe four and it did, you know, we, uh, we got out there, we went to stores, we brought samples, we educated the customers. We talked to them about how duck eggs, you know, we're eating on the cancer diet, the alkaline acidic thing, because chicken eggs are acidic and duck eggs are alkaline. Um, and so I actually had a customer that had a dog that had brain cancer. He was buying duck eggs from me for the dog. Um, it, was, it was pretty wild, you know, like that was cool. So, you know, we have, you, have to, you have to educate your customers in the sense of, you know, if you're selling in a store, educate the person at the store. And you're going to sell at small stores anyway, so that's easy enough. Um, you know, but our slogan was, is still, you know, never run out of yolk, <laughs> you know? So it's like, you got to catch people's eye and you really have to convince them. And people are very weird about trying new things, obviously, sometimes like they're very squeamish and I get it. Cause I, you know, probably was at one point too, when it came to this stuff. Um, cause you know, we're conditioned, you know, everything's boneless, skinless, tasteless chicken breast, you know? So you put a duck egg in front of someone. And the first thing they say is, does it taste the same? <laughs> you know? And you're like, well, you know, yeah, it tastes like a farm fresh egg. It's going to be a little richer. Um, I think it tastes better, but you should try them. Here's some, you know, just like you did. Here's some, try them, let me know. And you get people that just really turn into just, that's all they'll eat, you know. Um, we had to clean them, which I don't, a lot of places don't do it, but we had, we looked at market perception in the way that someone's afraid to try something in the first place. They're not going to want to try an egg with stains on it. Um, 
And a lot of times when you get farm fresh chicken eggs, they're going to be some stains, but they're brown eggs. So you can't really tell anyway, you know? So we actually went to the steps of, we have a spritzer with vinegar and peroxide and we spray them quick and we use a, or, uh, you know, one of those yellow sponges with a scouring pad and we just kind of brush them off and make them look nice. You lose a little bit of shelf life. Um, but I've found eggs like that still last, you know, I've had them in the fridge for five months at a time. You know, yeah, definitely. Well, we, we do something similar. We, we wash them because of appearances. Yeah. Um, if we have a customer that specifically says, I know all about this and you don't have to wash my eggs, we'll set eggs aside for them that are unwashed, which is the best way to go. Yeah. And wash them right before you crack them and, and you're good. Yep. Um, cause the blem's there. And, and, but what we found, and this was a trick I learned from my grandmother as a young kid, we wash them and we rub them with mineral oil. And that oh. mineral oil reseals the pores on the egg and you get it every bit as long a shelf life that way. When I was a kid, eggs didn't, live in the refrigerator uh, yeah. by regulation we have to refrigerate our eggs once they're collected but my grandmother we would collect we had chickens and ducks and we'd collect the eggs and she'd if they were clean she'd just rub them with mineral oil if they weren't she'd she'd clean them off and put them in mineral oil and they sat on a a bowl on the table huh. and we i never saw and she always said if there's a bad egg you'll know it when you crack it wow yeah that's true and no one ever died <laughs> No one ever got sick, you know, from an egg anyway. Um, so I think we've overreacted to that. But, you know, I do what I have to do to comply with regulations. I, yeah. I, I, I don't really want to please the state, but I also don't want them making me sad either. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to, it's preventative. You know, and, and, yeah. you know, most of our audience and your, or your audience are the people that are us. <laughs> yeah. They learn, man, you got to act preventively on a lot of things. So it's, you know, it's just that same train of thought, you know, um, you know, that's why, I mean, I went and researched regulations online first, and then I couldn't find too much. I found some stuff, you know, obviously relative to chicken eggs, and I said, okay, you know, let me call someone anonymously and ask a question, you know. But that's the way I always go. Th those are the channels I always take, at least, you know. I, I um, think, and I don't know what your opinion is on this, but I think you have less likely of contamination through the shell with a duck egg than a chicken egg just because of the shell structure itself. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I, it's nice. so thick. Yeah, it's night and day. I have people uh, in the beginning. I had customers that that would call me and say, "I think you sold me hard boiled eggs." <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be, no, you know, they're just uh, harder. Yeah, use a knife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and, and it, that's nice sometimes. On the other hand, you get a lot more shell in your eggs, but whatever, extra calcium, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I eat my eggs raw in a because I'm paleo and. Yeah. As you know, you know that, that's another thing I have you to thank for is it's you know introducing that to me, right? Um, that's a lifesaver. Oh, by the way, just publicly, you know, for your for your ego a little bit, you look great, dude. You get <laughs> so much weight. Yeah, thanks. I'm mean, 95 pounds in two years. Wow. So, and it's um, this is probably the first winter of my life where I didn't gain weight. So awesome. That's nice. And uh, you know, I'm only paleo. You know, in the winter, it's tough, man. You know, 70% of the time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, because you drive by, you know, the burger joint with your fiance and you're like, I really want a burger too. Let's just do it. You know, whatever. yeah. And that's smells <laughs> lofting out of there. Yeah. And, you know, a burger not on a bun. It's, if you do it at home, you can, you can mitigate it a little bit. What I'll do is, like, you know, the top of the bun is usually really thick. Yep. So I take a knife and I cut that sucker in half and throw half of the top of the bun away. But, yeah, I'm not eating a burger without a bun. That's the point of a burger. 
Yeah, exactly. But you showed me the bonectomy, actually. Yeah, the bonectomy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you still get the flavor, and you, you get the the, the 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 burger juice goes, and it's good. And you know, yeah. it's not that bread isn't good tasting; it's that it's not good for you, so you eat less of it. Hey, I got a place for you actually in Dallas. I'm gonna, can I give a place a plug? Yeah, man. <laughs> Fred's Redneck Cafe in Dallas. Or, I'm sorry. Cafe. Fort Worth. I think it's in Fort Worth, actually. Okay. It's even better since I'm on that side. Dude. Paleo Burger. They like a, it's like a 10-ounce burger. It's got awesome Chipotle sauce on it and stuff and cheese and whatever. And it's served underneath this giant salad, right? And you got to eat through the salad to get to the burger. And uh, <sighs> when I landed there the first time to come to one of your to your class a couple years ago or whatever that was um, – I got a, you know, I got my rental car and I, I'm going to drive around and find a place to eat. I'm in, you know, I'm going to go to Fort Worth and just check it out. You know, first time I'd been in Texas since I was five, you know? Um, and I found that place by accident and it was awesome. And awesome, it's, man. It's so just like, you know, you're what you would expect in Texas, you know? I'm going to have to like, look them up. Yeah. Check it out, dude. It's so worth it. And get that burger, man. Oh my God. So good. But, uh, anyway, so back on the topic i guess right yeah <laughs> i uh i eat my eggs raw almost every day in the summer um on the paleo diet i throw them into a blender with a half a cup of heavy cream or a quarter cup of heavy cream roughly um some of the the right cinnamon and uh some nutmeg and i blend it oh and some vanilla and a little bit of stevia and i I, I do landscaping jobs over the summer, you know, when it's 95 degrees outside and you're just working like a, you know, and, uh, you know, you're working like crazy. And this stuff keeps me going for six, six, eight hours, but I'll put six duck eggs in there and, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and drink that. And man, I had one yesterday actually for the first time this year and it is so good. You won't it's, eat for eight hours after that either. Between the, yeah. and the eggs, man, you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, six duck eggs. I mean, I think I ate three or four yesterday in this shake and that was in the morning. And I went and did a side job, and you know, I was with my fiance, and we stopped to eat some wings. I think at six, and I was yeah. like, I was like, yeah, I can always eat I wings, can eat, but I don't have to. Yeah, I mean, wings are my favorite thing in the world, so I can always eat some wings, you know. But like, I didn't need to. <laughs> I think when you're on paleo, I don't want to dominate this conversation with paleo now, but I think when you're on paleo, like winter, I, I think you start to eat naturally. So winter, you tend to cheat a little more, just like the paleo ancestor probably ate whatever grains were, you know, stored up for survival food in the winter. Right. Put a little weight on, maybe here or there, and it's not a big deal. And in summer, it's like it kicks in a hyper overdrive with those longer days. I find myself like last night. I said to my wife, I said, "Should I cook?" She says, "It's almost eight o'clock." I'm like. Well, holy shit, I guess I should cook then. Yeah. Right. And it didn't even occur to me. You know, I was out working. I planted like uh, 15 nanking cherries yesterday, and I, I wasn't really paying attention to the fact that it was – she's like, well, we could, we were making uh, tomato soup, roasted tomato soup. She's like, we could eat the soup. I'm like, that's not going to be done for another two hours. So I threw a couple steaks on the grill. Nice. And, yeah. you know, I, I think back to before I did that, and if I went that long without eating, I'd be sweating I would be shaking, and I'd be like terminal asshole at the same time. And you just don't get that way anymore after you, you get off of those carbs. Yeah, I have the exact same result. But to bring it kind of back around to ducks, right, um, so that's part of your marketing, right? Yeah. So I go in to this health food store, and I sell them duck eggs, and I tell them about different things they can tell their customers. They get you know they get the workout people in there. They get the health yeah. food people in there. and they get people More that, protein, more good cholesterol, more nutrients, more everything. 
Yeah, everything you want in an egg, right? And and it's local and it's farm fresh and now it'll be soy free, you know? Yeah. Um, and these people are intuitive to that stuff. And you, that's your market right there is people that are allergic to chicken eggs, um, on a special diet, you know, uh, want to work out, just want to eat better food. You know, at gourmet restaurants is another place to go. Uh, my, my fiance works at a really high end restaurant on the, uh, you know, on the water here in Newburyport. Beautiful place. Uh, it's an oyster bar. They use our duck eggs like it's they we actually they started using our duck eggs and then in the winter when I said hey it's seasonal sorry you know they had to go find duck eggs somewhere else and they were paying something <laughs> like nine bucks. Sudden, your price isn't a big deal anymore right when yeah you, you have to buy them in the off season from out of state or whatever then you find out how much a duck egg really costs yeah and that's the thing is it really puts it in perspective they're they were paying probably nine bucks a dozen for something that wasn't anywhere near the quality we're using you know absolutely. I think and, quality is uh, really important too. I mean, let, let's let's hold on a, just a second before we get into more because I want to go more into market development. But okay. I, I want to one I want to give you an uh, something you got to do first, and then I want to talk to you about the breeds before we go into more market development. So you were talking about the like the egg smoothie. Yep. What we did this year, first time I ever made it this way. I used duck eggs to make freaking uh, the adult version of eggnog. Oh yeah! Holy God! Yeah. Like, it made normal eggnog taste like – now, that's not paleo because there's sugar in it, but the bourbon offsets the sugar, right? So, yeah. Oh, my – so for this Christmas, dude, you've got to make a bowl of duck egg eggnog. You know what's it's, crazy? It is so good. I promised that to my father. They they came here for Thanksgiving, uh, and I was proposing to Jenny on Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. And uh, I promised my dad that kind of eggnog. He doesn't drink, but I you know I promised him home fresh eggnog, and we were yeah. gonna obviously obviously make it adult. And um, then the power went out the day before Thanksgiving, and then everything started going sideways, and I had to, a proposal to do, so that all went out the window. Right. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, yeah, I, and I, I, I'm bummed I missed out on it, man, because it's, it's seems. You gotta do it, man. You gotta do it this time around. A little nutmeg. When you were talking about cinnamon and nutmeg, I'm like, oh, he's got to do this now. Just, just want to throw that to you. It's like duck keeper to duck keeper thing. Yeah. <laughs> but now, before we go into the market development, let's talk about the breeds, because like I started doing research when our, like our market developed underneath us. We were thinking we we're gonna sell chicken eggs, and. Yep. Every mom and pop store around here sells chicken eggs, and they're selling for two dollars a dozen. I can't make money like that, and the duck egg just kind of blew up. So I'm like, I want maximum production. I did all this research, and in the end, I'm like, the Mets are layers, man. Yeah. Um, now I didn't get the Goldens because they were out, and I would have had to wait like another month. Yeah, with the whites, which kind of do the same thing except they're white. What is your opinion now on the Metzers versus like your common breed, your Rowans, your Runners, your Cayugas, your Swedes? Well, I, I have, um, you know, I, I've had all these different breeds, you know, and, uh, and it's funny for years I said, Hey, we need to get these Metzer 300s. This seems like it's too good to be true, you know? Um, but I kind of was hesitant, you know, every year we had something come up or whatever. And I was like, well, it's going to take a whole season to get eggs out of these things. You know, um, it's like planting asparagus. You have to wait three years for it to really produce, you know, but you, yeah. you should do it, do it now, you know? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I ran into a lady just uh, just networking in the local farm world around here. I, I was looking at Craigslist for raw milk. I found raw goat's milk right up the street. Went up, talked to her, saw the birds, and said, "Hey, what are those? You know, are those those don't look like regular ruins or khakis or whatever." Um, and she was like, "Oh, those are those three hundred layers. I got them off of eFowl or whatever." Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, "Really?" I was telling you, had them. She's like, two years." And I was, "Do they really give you three hundred eggs?" And she's like, "I got three twenty on average last year." Um, 
which is nuts. You know, up here, getting 320 eggs out of a duck in New Hampshire is insanity. You know, <laughs> it's like I was 150 to 180, if I'm lucky, per bird, um, which, you you know, that brings it back around to, to the business end is I'm making no money on that because they're eating more feed, actually, than the 300s eat. Mm. Um, you know, I have pecans. I have a significant amount of, of pecans or pecans. I don't really know how to say it. I've always called them pecans. Um I have a significant amount of those. I have a dozen blue swedes. They're big birds. Um, they eat a lot of feed and they produce a nice big egg, you know, but 150 to 180, you know. And if you start doing that math up here, what it costs to keep a duck going through the winter with the electricity and the labor and the feed that they eat, because they eat more feed when it's cold, you know, to stay warm. That's another thing. And, and you want to throw down more feed just in case a lot of times when it hits minus 10 here or whatever. I go out and just fire a bag of feed down, even if we've already fed them, you know, um, just as, you know, it's insurance. I'm like, oh, you know, 12 bucks. I know they're going to make it through the night. Great. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I got into the 300s last fall and I, I brought in the white ones. And um, the only thing I was disappointed about was to read, and I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it now, is a lot of people really like the deep yellow color of the yolk from a duck egg. The 300 white layers, I guess lay a, a, a softer color, you know, like a more of a whiter yellow. Mm. And uh, the restaurant where my fiance works actually did a duck egg, like drizzle around some some stuff that they just made. I can't remember what it was called. Um, and it did look, I knew that was our duck egg, and it didn't look as yellow as I thought it would be. And then she came home and said, yeah, the chef said that it wasn't quite as dark as usual. Yeah. I said, well, well, it's either the fact that they're not getting a lot of green right now because it's still... You know, everything's still frozen here on April 1st, which, you know, is our global warming at play, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, we don't need to get into that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, or it's those new birds. Um, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm potentially disappointed in that, I guess, you know? Yeah. And I know, I know that the, that's desirable with uh, the Asian delicacies that I don't cater to, <laughs> the balut or whatever that's called. Um, I, I have people call me for those kind of eggs, and I'm like, I'm all set with that. Um, so you did that too. I had people too that wanted the ducks for the balut, and I was like, I don't do that. Yeah. No. I, the one guy like got really mad at Dorothy that we wouldn't sell to him. I said, give me that phone. Yeah. And uh, by the time I got done talking to him, I don't think he's ever calling back. Yeah, I've, I've fired plenty of customers. <laughs> yeah. So, um, just, yeah. That makes me sick. That, that this it's so developed at the point, like, and to die by boiling – if you're not a lobster, I'm not or a clam. I'm not killing you with boiling. I'm sorry. I'm just not. Yeah, it's it, it's horrible. It, it's really just horrible to me. And I, I, you know, I understand it's a cultural thing, and I'm sensitive to that. And I, you know, it's their culture. Fine. They can you know, do it, but I'm not providing it. That's- exactly. Exactly. And and I, you know, yeah, it's just strange to me, and and whatever. But <laughs> you know, I just it doesn't sit right with me. You know, uh, yeah, ethic- ethically. So uh, and, and that's what you were saying. I'm sorry. I just it, that's okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I'm not potentially happy with those. We'll see where that goes. And I do have, um, I did bring in some of the goldens now. I think the gold, right? The goldens are the ones that look like khakis and stuff. Um, and they're the same thing. They're just ones white and ones not, you know. And uh, and apparently the white one lays a, a lighter colored yolk. Um, you know, and I, I have some males. We're gonna dress them up for meat. 
we're going to see what happens with that. I think I might be lucky to get a four and a half pound carcass out of the males because at the time we bought them, we couldn't get straight run really. Um, or there was a mistake at the feed store, one of the two. Um, I didn't have them delivered because I bought such a small quantity. I just had the guy at the feed store do it. Um, so we got these, you know, these layers and we'll see how they go. I like them. They're, um, they're not as loud. They're a smaller, uh, size duck. They have a, I feel like they have a good demeanor. They're a little, you can spook them a little easier, I feel like. But that's the flock mentality. You, You know, you can hand raise a duck all you want. And it could be the most friendly duck in the world when it's in your house with a duck diaper on or whatever, you know. And then you take that out and put it with the flock, and flock mentality kicks in, and it's over. You know? Yeah, it, yeah. It, I've, I've noticed that, too. I've said, like, all these things about, like, this breed's calmer or whatever. In the end, the duck flock is the amalgamation of its parts. Like, yeah. whatever personality that bird had, it just became a collective personality. Yeah, exactly. And... You know, that's just what they are. I mean, it's for their own safety, probably. You know, you, obviously, if you have 100 ducks, they'll go a different direction. That's probably not good for their own safety, you know? Yeah, um, they definitely <laughs> flock. And I, I think the golden thing with the yolks, I think it has a lot to do with the diet. I, I really do. Um, yeah, I'm hoping that's it, because that'll change for us in a couple of weeks here when they start getting more more green, you know? I think it also has to do with the, the amount of insects they're eating. Because, yep. I mean, our yolks are like this ridiculous golden color, and... It, it is as ridiculous it is in the in the winter, in the summer when they're on grasshoppers and they're getting all of that that exoskeleton. It's it's unbelievable what it looks like that. Yeah, yeah, that makes. I heard you talking about that with the uh, the exoskeleton and it changes the, the color just like in a trout and, and it, yeah, it's the same thing. And like so, my 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 wondering now is what's going to happen, you know, um, this year and really more next year when we start having mulberries drop. And oh yeah, purple mulberries, man. That should that should just be awesome because I've seen it turn chicken eggs almost purple. Well, wow, that's cool. You know, so I'm thinking that golden and that purple that should be a really dark yolk because that's like one of the things people buy with a with a duck egg is the way that yolk not yeah. only looks but its consistency. Like if you cook a duck egg to medium, like uh, over medium, yep. you can take the the, the knife. And you can spread the yolk almost like egg yolk butter. And it's yeah. like, there's no chicken egg in the world that does that. It goes from water to hard. Yeah. It's one or the other. You, know, you open a chicken egg and it just runs. You open a duck egg that's cooked right and it oozes. Yeah, the, uh, man, the yolk is just, you just can't compare it to anything else. I mean, goose eggs are cool and all and they have a good yolk too, but you know, yeah. good, luck, good luck with your 40 eggs a year, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. like your yolk is like, you know, the size of a child's face or something like yeah. that. It's a little hard to get it cooked. Like, I tried to do one goose egg over easy, and it was it was hard to get the, the whole thing cooked right, if that makes sense. Now, again, I want to get to the market development stuff, but just another duck guy to duck guy thing now. I was watching Brunch with Bobby Flay yep. this weekend because it was the only thing good on. <laughs> and he was doing some kind of open-faced egg sandwich with, like, toasted and this, the, like, tomato mustard relish. So it was, like, mustard seed and tomatoes, uh, like, cherry, the different toma- cherry tomatoes chopped up with garlic and mustard seed cooked to a relish. And then toasted sourdough and then a soft-cooked egg on there with the tomato relish. And he poached the freaking eggs in olive oil. Ugh. So, like, you put, like, two inches of olive oil in the, in the thing, and you take it to, like, 140 degrees and then drop the eggs in and slow poach them. And I'm like, i I got to do that with a duck egg. Yeah. And you that seems, that. like, ridiculous. You could do that with any – man, you, 
Try doing it with duck fat. <laughs> oh, oh wow! Oh, oh my chef customers. Yeah, that poached duck egg in duck rendered duck fat. Oh yeah, I'm gonna have to tell her, try her that, dude. We're gonna call that the Dowie. Yeah, <laughs> which I is coach- better than like? So I met some people recently that came to the house and they're like they're raising ducks and they made one of the drain things for the duck shit water. Yep. that I made and they call it the Spearco. <laughs> so I'd much rather have a poached duck egg named after me than a, a, a shit water catcher. Than a duck toilet. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk a little bit about creating a market. So, like, where do you get your customers? What kind of customers do you have? Well, we have – it's all different kinds. Like I said, it's, a, you know, a lot of people that are just into the health food thing. There's people that just like the local food thing. Um, there's just people that are allergic to chicken eggs. We've had that. Um, dietitians refer people to find that, that kind of stuff now. Um we created our initial customer base off of Craigslist, and um, what you'll find is if you have the right, if you've created the market or you're already in the right market, you'll put an ad on Craigslist for maybe a year or a season, and then you'll never do it again because you'll never be able to have enough eggs, <laughs> you know. Um, but we we did the Craigslist thing. We created a nice, you know, we didn't just go, oh, we have duck eggs that are you know five bucks a dozen, you know, blah 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 blah, you know, here it is and nothing. We put a nice Craigslist ad list ad up with a nice header, just like any marketing, nice header, nice body, some nutritional information that you can just find on the internet, some, you know, descriptions about what they're like, you know, our little tagline, never run out of yolk, um, some pictures of duck eggs next to a quarter and duck eggs next to a chicken egg and some of the ducks swimming. So just some nice marketing on Craigslist that takes you 15, 20 minutes to throw together. Uh, that worked really well for us. Um, then we got into some stores and we had a nice butcher shop downtown um, that unfortunately went out of business because of a conflict with the lease or the landowner. And uh, that was like two years ago and the place is still vacant. Nice job, buddy. But uh, we had a nice local food butcher shop type place down there um, that we sold in and she, her, we brought them a sample. So that's what it's all about is get your product in someone's hands too. Mm -hmm. Uh, We brought them a sample. It was a, I believe it's a Greek family. Um, the mother took the eggs and baked with them and looked at the daughter who owned the store and said, you have to sell those eggs because they're awesome, you know? And that's that's what it's all about is you get this product in someone's hand that's willing to try it and you have, you know, you have an advocate now. You know, you don't just have somebody buying eggs. Um, so we sold eggs there for years, had a lot of success there. Then the feed store where we, where we buy feed decided they wanted in, but they didn't have as much success. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're going – Selling eggs at a feed store is kind of, you know, is that really going to work? You know, because it's everybody it, has animals that go to the feed store. Yeah, and so that didn't really work very well. Um, so we're, we don't sell there anymore, actually. Um, and then we got into this other health food store that's a little more, you know, it's all it's like a mini uh, Whole Foods, but it's actually a health food store because Whole Foods isn't. <laughs> so, yeah, I got <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it's one of those niche health food stores, and they love the local thing. They actually live in a town that's very restrictive, um, and or they're in a town that's very restrictive. And they actually they do their own farmers market there, which is really cool. Uh, some of the stuff that goes there, we've done the farmers market. We brought ducks to the farmers market to spread the word. People love seeing that. So there's some more marketing. You know, uh, we hand select a few ducks that we know are less, uh, you know, spook a little less, um, and we bring them there. We set up a little baby fence essentially <laughs> put, yeah. some hay, put some a tarp and some hay down and there they go people love it um but yeah we got into her store and that kind of spread the word a little more we're on facebook um and then just word of mouth you know and 
it works. You know, it really does work. You know, your labeling on your egg cartons works real well, but you just, like anything else, you have to put the effort in. You have to get out there. You have to talk to people. You have to beat feet on the pavement, and, and you have to convince people that this is what they actually want because they do, you know, and it's – it's Yeah, you, know, you have to convince them to give it a shot, and then they figure out they want it. I mean – I, I, I kind of diss on my chickens now, but I have to admit that they helped me establish a customer base because I did get chicken customers that were like, we don't like duck eggs. Yeah. We tried them once and they were nasty or whatever. You're like, you know, let me give you two duck eggs. Yeah. And we would just say, here's a dozen chicken eggs. Here's two duck eggs. Yep. And they'd call back and you got any more of them duck eggs? Right? No, we got lots of chicken eggs. I don't want the chicken. I want the duck eggs. <laughs> and it was like... I think most of the people that said they tried them before never actually did. Somebody told them that somebody told them that somebody told them. Yeah. And I asked the, the guy from 50 Ducks in a Hot Tub, like, have you ever had a bad duck egg? Is it like, can they be raised in a way where they don't taste right? Because I've, I've read, well, if they, like, ducks live in a swamp, they'll take, and his, you know, his ducks, he's, he's got it made, man. He's got like a yeah. 100 acre lake in his backyard or whatever. And those ducks live on minnows all year long and, there's no bad taste to his eggs either, and it's no. it's something mental. I do think that there has to be not just an education of the product, but the the the, the treatment of the product. Yep. Because if you cook a duck egg in a hot skillet, especially if you're doing like an over easy, over medium type thing, and too hot, that that the white cooks too fast and the yolk cooks too slow. You've got to bring that temperature down a little bit with it. But as long as you do that, it's fine. And a scrambled egg, I I want to say my product tastes better than everything else. But I think in a scrambled egg, especially if anything's you know added to it, cheese, whatever, <laughs> I don't think you can really tell. No, you can't. And but when the white and the yolk are separate, you can look at it, and I would go, "That's a duck egg. That's not." Oh yeah, and it, it, I'm actually glad you brought that up because you you did mention that a few weeks ago about the lower heat and i didn't know that and i was like oh okay you know that's cool like because i did have some customer feedback in the past that said it was tough yeah um and, or, or rubbery or whatever yeah and so it's more protein yeah and and you're right about that so I, I tried actually the the lower heat method at work so we spread that that word now too you know and it's it's always about educating customers the cool part about it is if you have duck eggs and all you gotta do is mention something about, oh, uh, you know, farm or whatever. Oh, what do you have? Yeah. Oh, we have we have ducks. What do you do with those eggs? Oh, you can eat duck eggs. <laughs> you Dude, know. First, I, I bet you the first question you get: Do they taste the same as chicken eggs? Yeah, exactly. And that, that's that, the that's, question. Yeah. And the answer: No, they taste better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it just starts that conversation, and, and then it always ends up with, oh, hey, well, when you have eggs, or do you have eggs now, or whatever. Um, you know, they want eggs and uh, for the most part. And it always goes that way. And, you know, I'm a bartender, so I talk to a lot of people. And, and when that comes up, you know, and so is my fiance. It's the same thing. Um, when it comes up, it's a 20-minute conversation about ducks, which, you know, makes your bartending job hard. But, <laughs> but uh, So here's another, another, like, little thing to give your customers that gets them hooked even more. So if you, if you want to make egg drops, drop soup, you go to Chinese restaurants, it seems like a big deal. It's one of the easiest things in the world. Mm -hmm. You do an egg drop soup with duck egg, and instead of chicken broth, you use a duck broth. Mm -hmm. And it's the duck, if you've ever done a duck broth, it's so clean and it's a little bit more brown and it just has such an amazing flavor. That's another one of those things. And I think that's like a big part of marketing is like, here's the product, but then here's what you do with it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, you know, and I think, like you said, the scrambled egg thing, that's like the, I, you know, somebody's really squeamish. That's like the gateway drug, the duck eggs, right? Because it's, yeah. you know, here's some, you know. I lost um, for like 10 seconds, so back up and repeat that. Uh, where at? You just dropped at, you said, it's like the gateway drug and you've just gone for 10 seconds. Oh, okay. But yeah, so when you, you know, the scrambled egg thing is, you know, you tell somebody, hey, just, just try and scramble. And, uh, it's, that's the gateway drug to, uh, to duck eggs right there. Cause then once they've tried it and it tastes the same, they're in, you know, and, and then, and then they start obviously trying different things and, and doing whatever they're going to do. Um, but yeah, they're really, it's, it's fun having the conversations, you know, with people about it too. If you're, you know, if you're passionate about it, then it's, it's a, it's a great time, you know, and, and the different stuff you can do with duck. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the meat part of it. Um, I know you've covered it somewhat before, but we did a lot of meat ducks here. We ended up with some of the best, cooking fat you'd ever come up with, you know, about a cup, about a cup per duck, I would say, you know, we breast the duck. We, I cooked that in a cast iron skillet with Montreal steak seasoning. Every bite of a, every bite of a duck at breast cooked like that is like the best bite of a ribeye. It's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't like to say anything negative about anybody, especially even people that I've had on the show really. But like, so Matt from 50 ducks, he was talking about how he, they, they, they butchered all these ducks and he ended up with like these two little jars of fat from like hundreds of ducks. I'm like, I don't know what you're doing, dude. Yeah. Because you get about a, a pint jar at least. Yeah. Per duck if you, if you do it right. Have you done the duck cracklins thing with the, I have. Oh my God. <laughs> that's ridiculous. That's like, see, it's for those that haven't heard me talk about it before, you take the duck and maybe you breast it out and you part it out. And what I usually do is since I leave the skin on the breasts and I leave the skin on the quarters, what I end is all the skin from the back. And I, I'll, I'll do two or three ducks at a time and I'll cut all that skin up and you put it in a pot with a little bit of water to get it started so that it's not immediately hitting hot metal. And by the time the water boils, boils off, you're down to fat. And eventually you end up with this gorgeous fat and these things that look like pork rinds. And yeah. those are, oh my God. And so I've started using them because of paleo. Instead of croutons in a salad, I use a duck crackling. And it's so – and whatever you – like as soon as it comes out, it's hot and it's a little sticky because it's still got the oil on it. So whatever you hit it with for like some sea salt and some some herbs sticks to it. And then when it's cool, it's it's got that salt on it. Oh, my God. They're so amazing. Yeah. I haven't eaten them cool yet actually. I just kind of – Can't. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't made it that far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to do two or three ducks at a time to get enough cracklings to have a little left over. Yeah. But yeah, it's like you can get like one duck makes three meals. So you get a, maybe more because you get a breast. So there's your meal, two, two breast portions for two people. And then you get your quarters. You do them like a confit. Yep. And I usually confit the wings right with the quarters because they come out great anyway. So why not? Yes. And then I take the wing tips and all the skin and I make cracklings and I take everything that's left and I roast that and I make a broth. And yeah. it's it's amazing what you get out of one bird. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. And then and we do the broth and then the dog of course gets the bones, you know. Yeah, because by the time you're done making broth for <clears throat> paleo broth, the bones are Yeah. You can crumble them in your hands. It's dog I found candy. that like the, the breastbone is gone. When I do broth, like by the time I'm done with it, there's like nothing left of it. It's just it's disintegrated into the broth. It's like the leg bones, the thigh bones, etc. Yeah, the backbones that are left. So, what mm-hmm. are some other things you're doing? I know you're doing some permaculture consulting. You mentioned microgreens and rabbits. 
Yeah, we're uh, I'm doing some consulting. I, you know, I, you know, I have a job uh, up in uh, Danbury, New Hampshire, that uh, you actually referred me to. So thanks for that. Um, we're gonna get rolling here on that as soon as there's no snow up there. <laughs> so I got up there to that property uh, just before it snowed and checked it out. It's huge. It's awesome. It's a new pick blueberry farm, and uh, it's it's a monoculture right now, and ho- hopefully it's gonna be a polyculture soon. Um, so that's awesome. We we're getting into the microgreens. We're actually gonna Starts, you know, delivering sampling and marketing um, tomorrow and a little bit today. Um, she already did a little bit today. <laughs> so um, we're, we're into that. Um, really for us, it's, uh, you know, like you've talked about so many times, it's, you know, we're trying to create our own businesses and our own revenue streams here so that we can, uh, you know, uh, what I call retire, retire by, you know, working for myself. <laughs> so, uh, we, you know, we do the eggs. We do the microgreens. Those are going, those are really cool. I have a, uh, you know, luckily I have a very forgiving, awesome fiance that lets me put grow shelves up in the living room. <laughs> so, cool. um, we have that going though. And those things are going well so far, as far as the growth goes. Um, I'm looking to get into meat rabbits. I have two rabbits now, giant Flemish rabbits that I, they're pets and they are fertilizer production. And we use that a lot. Um, so we, we get a lot of, we needed a lot of fertility on this land to do anything. The first year I lived here, you put a shovel in the ground a hundred times and you might be lucky if you find one worm. Um, now put a shovel in the ground anywhere and you're going to find 20, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, we've done a lot of soil building here through the rabbits. Um, now I want to take that to the next level because essentially if you think about it with the ducks and the microgreens and the rabbits, you know, you have a nice little cycle there. You know, it's, it's, it's. You know, you're going to take the the mats from your microgreens. You can feed them to the rabbits. You can feed them to the ducks. I've already done that. They love it. Um, as long as you're feeding your rabbits organically, you can take the manure from the organic feed and what you've fed them from the microgreens. Compost that a little, I'm assuming. Um, you probably didn't take much with rabbit manure. And then just reuse that for your microgreens, you know, and you just yeah. have this nice cycle going. And then you mitigate your one one of your top two major costs of the microgreens, soil. Soil, right? absolutely. So, you know, we're looking to mitigate that cost and uh, and really supercharge the profitability. And uh, we have a little competition around here, so we're going to have to beat that. And, uh, you know, I think we can. So, you know, and then obviously the rabbits are going to produce meat. The ducks are going to produce eggs and meat. And, um, you know, it all goes back into the soil, right? You, so, you know, you make an interesting statement with the microgreens. This is – and beating the competition. Um most businesses, even relatively small businesses, like to limit the number of vendors they have to deal with because every vendor can be a problem. And once I know you're a known quantity, I want to give you my business. Yep. I'm selling you duck eggs. Yep. This makes sense that you would buy your microgreens for me too. Yep. It's a Absolutely. single purchase order. It's a single source. It's a known quantity, what have you. So I think that's a big advantage there because I'm honestly looking at, like, how do I expand at this point? I'm like 100 ducks on my property represents like a, a half a grazing unit. And, yeah. and I, I don't really, I think I could put a, another hundred. I could do 200 ducks here. You're doing a hundred on, you know, a, a 20% of what I have. Yeah. But my land doesn't have anywhere near the, the greenery that yours will in the summer. Anyway, it's just a different climate. You've been here. You know how it is. Yeah. But there's like 90 acres down the road and I'm like, Big excavator, four acre pond. You could be duck nirvana down there. Yeah, I've uh, I've uh, ri- I put on paper the I call it the duck wheel, right? Yeah. 
where you have a, uh, a, a a pond in the middle and you do paddock shift ducks around the around. outside. It, yeah. And then, uh, so in the beginning you have your brooding, uh, house, right? Yeah. And then you, and then you release them into a paddock of the, or a section of the pond. You'd have to fence the, the pond. The somewhere. pond, yeah. Um, and you want to start, I think, with a new pond that you dug because if you just find a pond and throw this thing up around it, you're going to deal with snapping turtles. Prob- I don't know where you are, but here I'm going to deal with yeah. snapping turtles. I'm going to deal with pike. I'm going to deal with, you know, whatever, all the, we, anything. We have that- a lot of snapping turtles in the smaller farm ponds that we have are those green ones. And they're yep. not a big problem for the adults, but your yep. ducklings, all you hear, yep. bloop, bloop. Exactly. You can only 22 so many of those. Yeah. Anyway, and you know, the thing about that is, you know, a, pe- a peckin or is going to be slower, you know, than a wild duck, and probably is going to lose a foot. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I don't know. You know, I just I, I thought about that, and and it's funny. You're saying the same thing I've been wanting to do for five years, which is, you know, once you get into this and you go, man, you know, if I could produce more eggs, you know, yeah, I could just I could just do this, you know, I could just do this, or I could do this and all these other peripherals, like ducks yeah. create fertility. Thereby, there's no yeah. reason that that lake couldn't have a multi-season harvest orchard around it. So the ducks are free-ranging through an orchard that they're going paddock to paddock to paddock through. And, you know, if you do have turtle problems, the easiest solution to turtle problems is trapping. And all you need is basically a floating basket and a plank that goes across it because what do the turtles do? They all sun themselves on the plank, and then they go bloop, (laughs) and then they're in the basket. And uh, then you're making uh, turtle soup. Yeah, and there's one more level, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, with that business, there's, and that's, you know, it's like permaculture business 101, right? You're gonna, you're gonna have ducks for eight. You're gonna, you're gonna be brooding your, and hatching yourself, maybe, you know, probably. Yeah. You're gonna have a meat yield. You're gonna have an egg yield. You're gonna have a fertility yield. You can actually, you know, take the, take it to a composting level where you could collect, you know, with a, box truck, you know, local yeah. produce, compost it, the ducks are going to eat that, you can sell compost, um, you know, there's just so much, and then... I think with the meat, if you wanted to do it as, like, a, like, a, the coal meat is, is is what it is, but I think for a person doing meat runs, I think you'd be better off buying, like, jumbo peckins, you're yeah. harvesting at 11 weeks, they grow fast like a hybrid chicken, <laughs> but yet they don't, like, look at you and go, please kill me yes. at, at the end, and there's enough supply to get them. And here's why I like that model. So pastured poultry is taking off. There's a lot of educated consumers. They're willing to pay $20, $24 for a pastured chicken. But in the end, you're still competing with the fact that I can go down to Costco mm-hmm. and buy a rotisserie cooked chicken for 5 bucks. Yeah. Right? A supermarket duck is $30. Yeah. So if I'm pricing my pastured, my, my equivalent pastured duck at 35 mm-hmm. I'm still in line with the market. Yeah, the only pitfalls I ran into was they weren't 12 weeks. Unfortunately, they, they oh, tell really? you that. Yeah, they, it's 12 weeks in a you know if they're locked in a garage of, with Ten. corn, you know, <laughs> whatever, yeah. uh, in a warehouse. Um, I was at 16 weeks with ducks. Really? Um, and they and I'm talking and I won't name the the hatchery. Um, because it was, I actually have a friend that's suing them. They're, they're, they were, it was a bad hatchery. Um, they claimed eight weeks, uh, to a five and a half pound carcass. Yeah. I don't buy and that. I, yeah. And I ended up with ducklings with broken legs walking around on the ground. They're not, they weren't bred for, to be even outside, you know, okay. they were, and I just had, we had all kinds of problems, um, with that, with that hatchery. Then I ended up with another one, um, that was, that was better, but, but I was still at 16 weeks, 
to uh, a slaughter size on pasture. Okay, that's yeah. important to this. <laughs> on pasture, everything's going to take longer to me. Um, even my meat chickens, my I did my my the Red Rangers. Um, I mean, I I let them go long. I slaughtered thirteen pound birds, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. they were they were also sixteen weeks because they all went at the same time. Um, but yeah, sixteen weeks to a five pound, a nice, really nice five pound carcass, though beautiful supplemental feed, you know, um, and just good forage. You're going to be longer, and then my my hang up around here is processing. It's no one wants to do ducks because they're yeah. so hard. We don't have the facilities here. I'm not that good at it, frankly. <laughs> See, I found a processor that talking to the non English speaking person that answers the phone. Yeah, and it's not just non English speaker. I don't know what language she speaks. I can't tell if she does geese or not, but I know they do ducks. That was yep. that was yeah, duck, duck, no problem. Okay, fine, <laughs> um, but they're not USDA. Yeah, well, I can't use them to process. I can use them for myself, but I can't use yep. them to process for a customer at all. I don't think so because wow. my exemption is for on-farm processing. Okay, so I have in New Hampshire, and I believe in Massachusetts too. Actually, amazingly enough, um, if I have, I can process anywhere and sell on-farm whole birds. Oh, really? Yeah, like I need to check into that then. As long as the uh, gizzards and all that are inside the, the carcass, so it's got to be the yeah. whole bird. You can't part them out, obviously. And why yeah, would you yeah, want yeah. to? I don't mind. Yeah. That. Don't, I mean, don't even. Yeah, don't even think about parting out. It's too much work, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and I can sell in or, or to restaurants. I can't sell in a store though. Um, yeah, without yeah. USDA. That's how and, too. Yeah, and good luck just. You know, even finding a USDA chicken processor around here is hard enough. You know, well, we can't just, find one in West Virginia. We're thinking about creating yeah. it because there isn't one. Yeah, I mean, there's your market, but you know, you got to have. The USDA thing is is tough because you got to have the the office on site for the USDA inspector. That's a, yeah. you know obviously an added cost. You got to you know you got to factor that into your cost somehow. Yeah. Um. You know, and, and like I said here with ducks alone, I got I've got one processor that I approve of, which is another level of this. Um, yeah. That'll do them for twelve dollars a bird. I can't make money on that. You know, unless I'm selling for eight bucks a pound. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, and there is that whole other level of like do i approve of this so like for instance yeah. when we realized we had more customers than ducks we decided let's get some adult ducks good yeah. luck right yeah yeah so but we found a couple up the road like 15 miles away selling the scubbies yep and i'm like okay well they lay mostly in the spring but that's right here right now so fine we'll get them that'll be extra eggs and we'll sell their eggs yep. so i go up there and they're like yeah we've been throwing the eggs away <laughs> so the first thing Dorothy says is, well, why don't we make a deal with them to just go up there and buy their eggs for $3 a dozen? And I'm like, because I won't sell their egg as my egg. Yeah. I just won't do it. I've seen the way they're – like, I'll take their bird, and two weeks after that bird's here, I'll sell that bird's eggs because yeah. whatever its past life was is over. But I see how they're feeding them. I see how they're taking care of them. I see them walking around in their own shit. I'm not selling that egg as a nine-mile farm egg because yeah. it will damage my brand in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, I've done the same thing. I actually did run into a farm that was good enough, you know, for me. Um, yeah. well, I don't want to, I don't want to say that, but it, they were good, you know, they did a nice job. And, uh, I did do that. But like I said, I was, I let the consumer know, hey, yeah, you know, just so you know, from a different farm, but they're doing yeah. things in a way I approve of. Yeah. And then when it comes to the slaughtering, see, I, this is one, my first instance firing a customer. Um, they used to sell, I used to sell these folks, um, 20 dozen eggs a week, you know, mm -hmm. and, one day they wanted to come to the farms. Okay, you know, no problem. Sure, come on by. Um, they're here, and I, I have 20 dozen eggs ready to go for them. <clears throat> We've got 
three, four different pens of stuff going at the time on a paddock shift kind of rotation. I had some turkeys. I had some meat ducks going. My first run of meat ducks. I had some meat chickens that were for me. And uh, that was that, you know. And they, first of all, I, I look over and they're peeling my labels off the cartons in the trunk of their car. So that means they're they're reselling them, you know. Yeah. I'm not I'm not real thrilled about. I don't know how I feel about that, you know. Yeah. Um, and I probably would have just let that go and said whatever, you know, because my name's off of it now. Do what you want to do. Um, but then they wouldn't stop asking me to buy live birds. They wanted to buy birds, and I said, well, I've got some chickens in the freezer. I could sell you. Yeah. And, and then you know how much? I'm like, well, the six bucks a pound. Yeah. Well, that's too that's too much. How about a live bird? And I go, no, we don't do that here. You know, just yeah. how many times I had to tell them we don't do that. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And because, frankly, I don't treat a duck right for 16 weeks of, it, of its life for you to take it home and stick it in your bathtub and let your kids poke at it for three days. And so you can swing it by its neck to kill it or whatever you're going to do, you know? Yeah. So so when I look for a processor, I go there. I want to know what they do. I want to know what their practices are. And I, I found a really great one here in, uh, I believe he's in Bedford or Milford, New Hampshire, um, who does everything you know, pretty much right. I don't necessarily, he does a shock knife to knock him out before he slaughters him, whatever. I don't, I don't have an opinion on that, you know, but, but from there on, everything is done really well. Uh, but he wants to do USDA and he, it's, you know, it's like jumping through hoops, you know? Yeah. So that's yeah, tough. It's, it's too bad that they make it that hard. I mean, um, so I'm going to have to check into that then. Maybe I can sell on farm even if I'm processed elsewhere. My understanding was I had to process on farm. I know it's that way in West Virginia, yeah. But I, I really haven't I haven't really wanted to do meat birds here. But when I start looking at the metrics, I'm like, and I have customers that want to buy them now. I'm like, I could run jumbo, jumbo peckins and I could make some money. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to process. I don't want to yeah. process my own birds. Yeah, I don't not do because it. I, I have any problem doing it. It's a time thing. It's like I could do another episode of the show, or I could process twenty birds. Yeah, it's. It's a lot of work, and we rented a plucker here and all this one time, and we were going to do our own ducks for the first time around and just because of the cost factor, and it just wasn't happening, man. Yeah. We, did, we did 13 chickens, uh, big chickens, you know, to test run it, and I hired a guy to help me for like 100 bucks on the day or whatever, and I rented a plucker, and for the money that I put into it for 13 chickens, I could have had someone do it for less money, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, it was about the learning experience then, you know? Yeah. Um, but. I did those chickens, and at the end of the 13, I just looked at them, and I said, man, doing ducks, no way. This yeah, there's so know. much more feather to deal with and what happened. Yeah. Anyway, so um, we kind of really beat it up pretty good here, John. I appreciate you being with us today. You want to tell folks how they can learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, we're at Facebook uh, under Dowie Farm. Um, you can always find me, John Dowie, on Facebook, too, You know, if you want to do that. Um, we are – Looking at putting a website up soon. We don't have a website yet because we haven't needed it. Um, but with the microgreens, we're gonna. We also uh, I've started the Southern New Hampshire Permaculture Meetup Group. So if you're in Southern New Hampshire or Northern Massachusetts and you want to do that, you know, jump right on there. We haven't done too much yet, but we're looking forward to a good season. I hope. Um, and it's you know it's good people. And uh, I can always be reached uh, through the um, the Dowie Farm Facebook page via messaging and whatnot. If you, uh, are local and you, or not. And if you have any questions, I'm always happy to answer those. If you're looking for some consulting for a small flock, let me know. Um, and you know, I can do, uh, I'll do a lot of things. I, I only work three, four days a week for the man. So, uh, I have a lot more time. <laughs> cool, man. Well, I, again, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. Excellent. No, thank you, Jack. And, uh, you know, you're always an inspiration and it's a pleasure to be on the show. 
I've enjoyed having you as always. And remember, you're always working, welcome at my place, not just for events. You ever want to come down here and hang out? Let me know. And we'll make that happen. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking, we're looking to come down sometime this year to see my, my, you know, my mom lives in Abilene. So, uh, you know, I want to. You're, you you're probably dealing with the same thing we are now. Getting things set up to the point where you can bring a caretaker in and yeah. do the right thing and not kill anything. That's exactly that's our goal is to make that easy. Yeah. And that's the automation thing. I didn't even get into that with the, uh, maybe you want to bring it up later or something or something with the, um, I bought a livestock, or I mean, I'm sorry, uh, a deer feeder. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to set that up with, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it, it's going to feed about 12 pounds a day, but it's enough to, that's part of getting along with your neighbors is keeping them quiet because they get loud when they're hungry, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, I know all about that. Man. Yeah, so this is going to space it out four times a day and all that stuff, and then, you know, I'm going to run some water lines out to the greenhouse and, That'll help. It's you know. interesting. I've thought about the deer feeder thing, too, because they're much better at getting the food off the ground than a chicken is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so and I, actually, I tap the food into the dirt while they're eating it. Well, I'm going to build a, um, a, a skirt around it, and it's going to drop it into the bin. Oh, that makes sense. That's yeah, so pretty you, cool. Yeah. And, then, and, and you know, I mean, okay, so it only drops 12 pounds. If I really want to automate everything for the 25 bucks, I'll just get more of them. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, know? man. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, I mean, that's... That's, that's cool, man. I, I like that. Maybe we'll have you back on and, and talk about some things as you develop and, and I develop. I think we're on similar paths. It, it could make some interesting future shows. Yeah, definitely. It's been fun, man. All right, man. Well, cool. with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with John Dowie helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't.
revolution is you.